0: My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is a deep thinker, broad reader, and writer. He bullies Silas, talks better reading, and limbs success polytheism. And if you don't know what those things mean, you're about to find out. Please welcome Jim Clare.
1: This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.
0: When I started the Renaissance of Men podcast in October 2020, I didn't expect to end up where I am today. I had just been baptized, but Christianity wasn't foremost on my mind yet. That shift would happen about a year later. Instead, what I thought I'd be talking about was men's transformations. In other words, their origin stories, and how those origin stories contributed to them becoming the men they are today. For me, at the very beginning, the renaissance was personal. It was something I had just been through, had just come out the other end of. And as I woke up, opened my eyes, and looked around, I could see countless men experiencing the same thing. It was both a local and global phenomenon. I wanted the podcast to document those men's stories in the hopes of encouraging other men to start walking down their own paths of personal transformation, to have their own rebirth, to give themselves the opportunity to become the men they wanted to be. That was as far as I thought I'd be taking it. Of course, Frodo left the Shire thinking he only needed to get to Rivendell, didn't he? It also turned out that capturing men's transformations is more difficult than I expected. In our reputational gladiator wars in the arena of social media, it's hard for men to admit that there were once things that they needed to let go of. Which amounts to a tacit admission of, I was wrong. I don't see anything bad about that. When I was a child, I thought as a child, etc. But in talking about masculinity, it's easy to be too invested in showing finished products, not works in progress, even if there's no such thing as a finished product of a man. And there's also the fact that once we get separated from the fires of transformation, it's not always easy to remember the process. Maybe we even want to leave the forging behind. None of this means, however, that I'm not deeply interested in men's transformations. The word renaissance means rebirth, going from one state of being to another, a one-way trip, whether that be at the macro-global or societal level or the micro-individual level. What we experience as men is just a small piece of our collective shift. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Jim Clare, and he's a writer. That's it he got his start in direct response copywriting, from which he's retired. Now he reads, thinks, writes, and works to surface the deceptions, flawed beliefs, and lies of the worlds through which he's traveled on his way to a better, fuller life. Perhaps all this sounds familiar, like another man you know. And if you recognize the parallels, perhaps you'll also understand why this quickly became one of my personal favorite conversations of all time. And yes, I know true fans of the podcast all have their favorites, but the day after this discussion, Jim and I were both still thinking about it. I think you're going to hear why, and I hope it benefits you as much as it did both of us. In our conversation, Jim and I discussed Edward Gibbon's classic, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, why reading is an intimate conversation, Jim's powerful journey of transformation, calling out gurus and success polytheists the limitations of chat GPT versus human writing, the process of learning and unlearning, and finally, men cultivating their taste and character. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. This show is growing like wild this year, and it's all because of you. So please continue to give this show five-star ratings on Spotify, five-star ratings and reviews on Apple, and share it with your friends. Also, huge thanks to everyone who attended the first edition of the Renaissance of Men Digital Conference, and to my speakers Will Noland, Ryan King, Nate Spearing, John David, Lawson Speaks, and Mike Pantile, plus the sponsor, Reformation Coffee. The event was a huge success that far exceeded all of our expectations, and our expectations were high. The recordings will be available soon on Vimeo On Demand to share with all of you, and I can't wait for you to see them. Mark your calendars for Saturday, May 27th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. the second edition. Attendees of the conference got a sneak peek of the lineup, and trust me, you will not want to miss it. So once again, block off Saturday, May 27th now, and get ready for the second edition. In other outstanding news, Reformation Coffee will be coming on board as the official sponsor of the Renaissance of Men podcast. The company founder and CEO, Brandon Lansdowne, spoke early in the day at the conference, and everything he said reaffirmed just how excited I am to have them as a sponsor. This podcast is my pride and joy, and I aim to only highlight the best, highest integrity products for sponsorship. It's what I think you've come to expect from me. And I'm happy to say, Reformation Coffee crosses that bar, and then some. Keep listening to find out more, or visit ReformationCoffee.com and enter the code SUBFREE to get one free bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. Again, visit ReformationCoffee.com and enter the code SUBFREE To get one free bag of coffee when you sign up for a monthly subscription. And last but not least, on Saturday, April 15th, here in Phoenix, Arizona, Annalise from Feminine Not Feminist and I are holding an in-person meet and greet gathering, including a live podcast recording. We found a coffee and wine bar in Chandler, Arizona, and we'll be there that afternoon to meet you guys, hang out, record our third total podcast together, and answer all your questions. And in case you're curious. Annalise is my most downloaded podcast of all time, and I'm the most downloaded podcast of all time on her show. So I'm really looking forward to our third conversation. Hit the link in the description to learn more and buy tickets, which we're using to offset the cost of the venue rental. And we look forward to seeing you here in Phoenix, Arizona on Saturday, April 15th. And please welcome this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, a reader, writer, and thinker, Jim Clare. hey Jim thanks so much for joining me on the podcast
2: thanks thanks for having me on here I'm really excited
0: excellent excellent well uh, if you don't mind I'd like to just uh I'd like to just jump right in because I've noticed that you're reading the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon lately and and I know that this is a series of books that a lot of people talk about but I don't know that a lot of people read them so I'm kind of curious to get your your take on the book so far you've been digging into them and and how you see it mapping to our current moment, because I know that's a, that's a thing right now as well.
2: Yeah, it's uh, I, I, you know, it was funny that you mentioned that how many people don't read that, or how many people actually read that series. I tried Googling how many people a year read The Decline and Fall, just to see if there was some sort of list, because I can't imagine people go through it. But it is clearly one of the most important books in wet, in the Western canon. As far as the great books, I can see its influence. I mean, the first volume was written in 1776 and it didn't finish until something like 1789. Wow. Um, From my understanding, and this could be a guesswork and I might be making a a mischaracterization, I believe the founding fathers uh, were reading it um, or they were looking at it because the Roman Empire was very important to them when they framed the government. And gibbon's work in the first volume published it was a big hit uh it was a big, you know very big hit in england you know especially among adam smith david hume edward burke but from what i understand it was also a big hit abroad uh, i don't know how books from england got over during the uh you know there was a little bit of that revolution thing going on so
0: yeah it was kind but of it is
2: time. um you know i i got it's funny i was writing this morning i, I got a lot of somewhat warnings about the book before i read it and then you know even looking around kind of before i read it because i knew it was going to be an undertaking you know i saw a lot of uh you know like criticisms of it i mean not necessarily criticisms, but i guess what i call mischaracterizations of it uh you know some say it's uh anti-christian i don't find that um, I think he's very even-handed in his approach. I could see how certain Christians, if you think that the Christianity has done absolutely no wrong in history, I can see that. But that's not really a fair assessment, right? Because you know, man is tragic, and man, you know, uh, is is running frameworks of religion, and and so uh, you know, man's tragedy can't get out of his own way sometimes. But he's not anti-Christian. Um, some people said it's revisionist. My uh, history nerd or as a history major in college, I don't sense so much revisionism. It's very philosophical. Uh, he goes very conceptual. He does go chronological. So it's a very deep uh, work uh, that covers just this vast, I mean, he it covers like 1,500 years. So It's a vast uh, work with a lot of uh, things in it. But it, yeah, it's, I can see the importance of that work.
0: So what was it that, that drew you to kind of read it? Because you said it was going to be an undertaking, which I understand that it is. Like it's thousands, a thousand pages or maybe much longer than that, but it's a, it's a commitment. Did you, did you go into it intending to read the whole thing? Or like, maybe I'll just try the first book out and, and see how it goes.
2: Um, yeah, Because uh, so I have, I'm reading the Penguin edition of it, which they curated six volumes into three volumes. So Gibbon wrote six volumes okay. and uh, Penguin has put it into three volumes. and uh, I mean, I just trust Penguin Classics. Usually their introductions are pretty good. You don't get so much. Uh, you know, Sometimes you get the super partisan type people who just kind of making their own. But Penguin's usually pretty good and the translations are good. But I mean, obviously Gibbon wrote it in English. Um, So I got that and I've been reading more of the so-called great books. And I was planning on reading a little bit more. But when I, I ordered it in, it was, that, I think, June of last year, and I just kind of kept eyeing it. Um, at that moment, mm-hmm. I was reading a little bit more of, you know, I kind of go down rabbit holes, and I was reading, you know, Thomas Sowell, and he kind of pushed me over to Adam Smith. So I've been kind of hanging around a few Enlightenment thinkers. Um, but one of my favorite writers of all time, one of my top three favorite writers is Neal Ferguson, historian. And I absolutely love his writing, yeah. and I love his writing style. Uh, Um, you know, he's, he's such a powerful and beautiful writer and he reveres Gibbon. So when I was reading that and I read his, uh, the second, or Ferguson's second world war book, uh, the world, or I think it's called the war of the world. That kind of nudged me a little bit more in the direction to read, uh, to take on Gibbon. And I am one of those people, I can only read one book at a time. I'm convinced someone who can read like five books at once is an alien. I know some people can do it and it's fine. Um, I've tried it. I just can't. I have such a hard time focusing with it. Like I I just kind of lose my train of thought because I start thinking about the other book and I want to finish. And then it's like, well, I can start a whole pile of books. Um, So I knew it was going to take me a lot of time. It's something like 3,000 or 3,300 pages around there uh, total. Wow. Uh, And the introduction to it, which is fantastic by this historian named David Wormsley, I think is his name, uh, is it, it's about 120 pages or so, something like that. That's fantastic it's on, book. It's, on, on its own. And it's it's really even just to read it that. But I knew I wanted to read it. I kind of expected a slog. So I kind of said, all right, I'll read it for the winter. Um, you know, I, it's going to take me a few months. I, I like, you know, I'm working on Reading it slowly, but I didn't expect. I kind of somewhat expected like boring parts that I would just kind of, you know, uh, hammer my way through a little bit. But uh, yeah, when I got into it, man, it is just so good. It's just so the writing is incredible. It's clearly, in my opinion, maybe one of the greatest nonfiction's ever written as far as uh, writing style and writing prose. I mean, his Gibbon's writing is just it's otherworldly. I mean, it's just in a completely different. Uh, level. Uh, it's beauty, it's style, it's rhetorical flourishes, how he unpacks arguments, his I mean and plus he has a lot of turns of phrases and he can be very funny. Uh, he uses a lot of irony and satire, and then you know, he'll he'll just kind of stack up what well, it seems like he's painting up like some beautiful virtue, and then he just does this complete twist of phrase, you know, to kind of give this little dig at something. So it's really funny how he can do that. Um uh, you know, and that makes it very uh, readable, but it also makes it uh, all the deeper themes makes it a lot more uh, easier to grasp, I guess you could say.
0: this is great because i I because I know that you're a writer, and I saw that you tweeted recently about reading comprehension or retaining the things that you read. And so I've, I'm also I've got Calvin's Institutes up on my bookshelf, and that's a thousand pages. So oh, this nice. is all really relevant for me because, like, how do I tackle a giant work like that? What kind of mindset? How do I retain what I read? How do I approach? Because a lot of these, you know, like the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, there are massive volumes that have been so influential to our culture. But a lot of people, they look at them as like, it's too much, I could never read that. People look at Moby Dick, for example, which is an absolutely worthwhile read, mm-hmm. but they consider that really challenging, and that's what 500 pages or something like that. <clears throat> so to approach something that's like 3,000 pages, and that's as influential you know, to our history as a, as a culture, I think it can be intimidating unless men know how to approach it, and then they know what to do with it. So you've read it, congratulations, you've read Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. But what do you do with it? Are you engaged with it? Are you there with it? And I think this is where a lot of men are recognizing, like, well, if we're going to begin rebuilding some semblance of Western civilization, excuse me, how are we going to go back to approaching the books that are so outside of our ability, our perceived ability to read? So all that that makes sense, because I think men are looking for something, they're hungry for something that informed who they were the day before yesterday, metaphorically speaking. And so there's maybe some intimidation approaching these things. Go ahead.
2: Right. I mean, well, there's a lot there. And I mean, that's a lot of also what I think about and kind of even where more my, you know, my site, my writing is going is that I think reading has been uh, from multiple levels, from multiple sides, even though it's been well-intentioned, it's been vulgarized and bastardized kind of into a, a life yeah. hack of sorts. Yeah. You know, um, you have on one end, you, you have kind of the hustle bros or hustle gurus, you know, s- telling you to read the, the nine books every man should read before they turn 50 or 30 or 100 or something like that. Or the nine books to read if you want to be a success or some guy saying, you know, I read 6,000 books on X, all were a waste but these three. And then the whole thing is this idea that you're going to... Uh, read these particular sets of books or read this particular book and somehow it's going to provide you some sort of lift. I mean, yeah, books do offer a huge benefit and huge insight, but if you're just kind of treating it like, oh, it's just going to be this, this holy grail, I'm just going to sit and download the information. And then I'm all, then I level myself up. Or if I'm going to write down, you know, th- that doesn't do anything. It doesn't engage you, the reader, but as well-intentioned as it is, and the other aspect I notice is there's this constant fear and anxiety to seek the lessons or to remember what you read. So we get these really, uh, and again, that is well-intentioned, it's directionally right, but it, it gets very quick into, you're not engaging the critical thinking, right? You, you either, if you're more in the professional success or what I, you know, what I call a capital S success world, you start looking for the income secrets in every single book you read. It doesn't matter if it's David Goggins, Can't Hurt Me, or if it's The decline and fall of the Roman Empire, you force both books into the same lens. And I've, generally, you're, you're trying to force the decline and fall into the lens of a can't hurt me, which can't hurt me is a little bit more. I mean, I mean the Goggins book is a little bit more of a motivational book, right? It's not quite a biography, an autobiography, but it's much more a book on mindset. And it's, you know, and it's written to a particular crowd. And that's not necessarily a knock on the book but it's not the weight and substance of the decline or fall. So a lot of people will take these books and try to turn it into that by finding the lessons. So they seek the income secrets or they seek the copy secrets. And I felt prey to the, myself to that y- years ago. Uh, and the other part is trying to remember things, right? We get this whole thing of, I'm going to remember it, I'm going to remember it, I'm going to remember it. So you have the second brain, the digital Kindle, the library, I'm going to upload it, I'm going to do this Anki thing, I'm going to do this Brian Holiday note-taking system, then I'm going to upload it to this but it doesn't bring you to the book, right? You're just kind of looking for nuggets that you're, you're trying to pass this quiz that, that you're not really ever going to be taking. So I think there is this, uh, and there's a speed element to it of wanting to have read, right? Not versus engaged. You got to do this really quick, yeah. right? You got to get these nine books, right? So there's this speed element to it. So you kind of just rush through this thing. And, uh, what's, I think who was a big influence on my reading was uh, Mortimer Adler, How to Read a Book, uh, which Mm -hmm. is at times very snobby. uh, And I think at times he's a little bit moralizing at times. But what he, what I like a lot about him is you're working to leave the book on the same intellectual footing as the author. It's not to say you're going to get there, right? I, I can't pretend I'm going to leave Edward Gibbon on the same page as Gibbon, or I'm not going to leave Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle on Aristotle's page, but I'm trying to engage with it in a conversation to try to get there, right? So I'm asking a ton of questions. Mm -hmm. And I noticed lately I've been doing a lot more marginality where I'm asking questions. I don't necessarily try to seek the answers always, but my marginality is a lot of questions. Like, oh, is this like this? Is this like this? So I'm thinking that I'm in the room with the author. I'm like, oh, is it like this? Is it like that? Maybe it's like this. Um, and then also, you know, I, I'll make observations and things like that. So I think that's a much better way, a much more better way to kind of engage with these books that can swim up, that can be tough to tackle. And I think there are ways to get into books like Gibbon. Is not exactly, not just going to grab Gibbon and like, oh, I'm just going to read this on a flight, you <laughs> know? Um, I think reading books require a little bit of consideration to get to it. And I think it's, it's worthwhile to do that.
0: This is, all, this is all really helpful for me because um, this is a question that I've been sitting with recently. I just finished the book, Libido Dominandi* by E. Michael Jones. It's about 600 pages, small print, incredibly dense book about essentially the history of the sexual revolution going back to the French Revolution and coming up until roughly 2000. So it was written 20 or so years ago. And so there was so much in this book, and I I I feel that I I did walk away from the book on the same intellectual footing as far as the book is concerned as E. Michael Jones. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, not gonna the same as you say, not on the same level of like Aristotle, like reaching that level, but you know, familiar with understanding understanding his logic. And so I wanted to move forward into into more books, and and I I was confronted with the YouTube uh, suggestion of. Ryan Holiday's note taking system, and I was like, "Huh, should I be doing that?" Because I'd never considered it before. And I tried it um, with a book for one of my upcoming guests, and I just found that note taking system to be excruciating. Like I would sit and write down the thing on a note card. And I was like, oh, five hours later, you know what I mean, in my messy handwriting. And so it sort of has me reflecting on, you know, okay, what is the right way to go about thoughtfully engaging with these books without treating it like a job? Like I want to enjoy the books I read. This is not a. This is not a. Uh, 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 there's a quiz. There's no quiz. There's a quiz that's never going to come. But how do I make sure to engage thoughtfully with the things that I'm reading so that I'm changed by it and that I don't treat it casually?
2: Yeah. I I think, I mean, what has helped me is, and again, and a lot of it ties back to Adler and and I'll also have to give some credit to, uh, I read it more recently, Alan Jacobs. uh, Is it the uh, reading in an age of distraction? um his his second book I had i i'm glad I read it, but it turned into more of an argument with him at times, uh, which is a good thing it, with the reading and what when i'm you know that comes back to um you know Adler has this aspect of i think one of the toughest or this question of when you're reading it, is it true or is it false yes or no and how and how true or false is it? And he wants you to answer with granular answers, right? Because it's really easy to pick up a book that you don't like and just, oh, it's stupid because it's, it's woke or it's or it's, uh, it's not woke enough. Like, you know, so it's easy to have these knee-jerk reactions or it's easy to have these platitude responses to it. But what is, how can you reason with the author if you agree or disagree on a, especially on disagree, if you disagree with the author, how can you. Uh, say your reasons or state your reasons in a way that he would under he or she would understand. You know, you may completely agree to disagree and you may even have to, you have to be radically honest of like, look, he may be right empirically, but I just don't like it. And you have to be honest with that, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it, it's just the way it is. So my cat is, my cat loves making uh, appearances. <laughs> and he's, that. Uh, yeah. And he's, he likes moving things around. Um, but how can you, you know, if you agree with it, why would you agree with it? Not just a knee-jerk or agree like, oh, because it fits my worldview, this is right. How can you do that? And if you start doing that at first, it can be really, um, it can be kind of tough at times because you, you realize you answer with a, with really is what I like a platitude or a chestnut. Oh, it's great because it's, it's X, Y, Z. It's like, well, that's just, that's not really an answer. But how can you get a more grounded, granular answer? I find that starts kind of elevating the conversation a little bit, because you have to be very honest with yourself. If you say it's 80% true and 20% false, okay, well, what's the 20% false? And if you treat it as, okay, if I'm telling Thomas a soul that he's 20% wrong here, how am I going to do that to a way where maybe he's not going to agree with me, but how is he going to be doing it to a way where it's like, okay, well, I, kinda, I can accept that. I don't agree with it, but I can accept that. That takes a little bit of work, I think, and it's it's very. I have to be very honest with it. Um, you know, when it comes back to notes, yeah, because I tried. It's funny you mentioned Ryan Holiday's systems. I tried that myself, and I had containers full of commonplace methods, and that's great if a commonplace method works for you. But I find yet yeah, it is a little bit, yeah. You read it, and then you got to write the notes, and you got you know, then you put it away, and then you try to store it, and like mindset or other things, it just gets kind of hectic. I find. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're asking, when you have questions before you read them and when you're taking marginalia or if you're taking notes as you're doing it, and I feel, find if those notes are much more conversational, we're not just trying to write down the, the lesson or the something to remember, but you're trying to press an observation or press back on an argument or press back on a question. Uh, I find that kind of gets you engaged a little bit more.
0: So this is maybe somehow also a little different from like, what question is not being asked? Because sometimes in in reading, particularly nonfiction books, you know, I understand that the author is putting a perspective forward, that they've obviously invested a ton ton of time, money, and energy to craft. And sometimes I'll read nonfiction books and I will find myself wondering what argument that I am not aware of has been excluded from this because it might undermine the point the author is making. I I sometimes find myself going into that place.
2: Yeah. Like, I mean, that's the thing you got to make. I think it's great when it's personal like that. You know, when you start saying or something just along the lines you said, or you're asking, okay, he's saying this, but as opposed to what? Um, Right. You know, and, and being honest with it. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe he is right or something. Um, You know, like I said, that, that Alan Jacobs book I read, which was, um, You know, the first one was great because it talks about slowing down and and having marginality. He he really does a great job of detailing the issues with modern reading. But the second one, um, in my opinion, it was clear that he's way too stuck in his academic faculty. Um, So he makes great points, but then he, you know, he's pushing certain things through fourth wave, you know, feminism, or he's pushing certain things of, uh, you know, kind of. He's not quite critical race theory, but he, he's, at, he, you know, he, he first, he praises, uh, you know, someone like Frederick Douglass and why it's important to read Douglass to have difficult conversations on race, which is absolutely true. But then he kind of castigates Douglass, or he says, I can't understand how Douglass can say the founding fathers are great, even though they are, they're flawed when America is such an oppressive place. So mm-hmm. it's like, wait a minute, you, you just, so, but I actually enjoyed having the argument with him in that moment, because I think he's a good ri- writer. But, it, you know, that, you have to be honest when it's like, okay, I'm about to call him out. I can't just, you know, do, throw Twitter snark at him or something. How am I going to call him out, right? And that is where that conversationless questions can really, uh, I think, take reading to a, a better level versus just trying to remember things. And then if your notes are like that, I mean, if you're asking questions like that, or if you're saying things like, that. Uh, maybe, if you, yeah, if, even if you get snarky, but you can back it up a little bit. That's where it kind of gets a little bit more one-on-one conversation. Because uh, for most of us, you know, there's no real test that we have to take. Like, okay, you know, you know right. who who you know, who was Alaric in Rome and what did he do? <laughs> it's no, like, test, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think that's kind of the way to kind of get us engaging in that world of ideas, especially with non-fiction books. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Say more about conversationless questions. Did I catch that phrase correctly? Is that like a, a question that you're asking the author that the author isn't necessarily there or available to answer that you allow the book to answer for you or not?
2: Yeah, so it's much more, I mean, I always say like reading is an intimate conversation and I, and I might have taken that from um, Adler or I just might've formed it my own. Uh, but I really do believe that reading is an intimate conversation and it's between you and that author. Uh, especially you know, nonfiction books. I think fiction, fiction is similar; just works a little bit differently, depending what kind of fiction you're reading. But for nonfiction, you know, I view it as you are you are in the room with that author, and it's you in one on one with that author, and you can ask that author any question you like. And the, the question Adler puts out, or the questions that I that I have signed up somewhat evolve from Adler, are um, you know what I'm looking for when I'm reading is uh, what's it about on a whole what's being said in detail and how, uh, is it, uh, true or false and in part or in whole and why, um, what of it and what of it is kind of, where does it stand in the grand scheme of ideas? And then I like to say, what lessons can I walk away with? But for me, when I'm reading that, I'm not just trying to stick to those particular questions. So I will go with the marginalia in, or in all, no, neither. Sorry, well, um, I get excited about this as you can tell. So neither no, am I it. trying. So I'm not trying to just stick to those questions. And when I'm reading it, I'm not just trying to write down the lessons or write down all the, the platitude sayings, because it's, it is in any book, you can find cool mindset type quotes. You can take very, any pithy sentence like, Oh, this is it. but That removes a context, right? It's great that that quote is there and that's cool. You want to be finding, you you want to be conversing with the overall argument of the book, or you want to be engaging with a story. I mean, the decline and fall is 3000 pages. It's it's tough to just kind of be engaging on one thing. There's so much to engage with, but that's where you want to allow yourself to ask questions, to press back. Or if you're, if you're making observations, um, you know, like I had, you know, one observation, like the reign of Julian, I'm like, is this, um, Akin to, and I think I asked a question is, is the reign of Julian, everything that he's laying out, is this like the current Biden administration, left wing establishment, how they're trying, are they working to undermine? And, you know, Gibbon's never going to answer that, right? He's, you know, he died you know, close to 300 years ago. Like he's, you know, he's never going to answer that. But it's just a question in my mind where, you know, it's just something for me to chew on personally. And it might not be like that. It might, you know, and it, uh, but that's a question where I kind of can remember that. And then also, you know, I, I'll take notes where it's like, ah, it's not, you know, where I'm saying like it's uh, in that book. It's like he's not anti-Christian. Maybe there's a pejorative here or there, but he's, you know, showing a, a relatively new religion that started, that started having division really quickly with each other, going into a world full of division. And you know, there's kind of this perfect storm of no one's really getting along. Um, everything is getting very atomized. So it's it's kind of like, oh, everyone said this. Well, this isn't true, right? So, and that, that's what I'm seeing. So when, I, when that pops up for me, that's just the observation I'm making. So it's more it's a more personal observation. Um, you know, so it's that kind of thing of whatever surfaces in, uh with the book, and then as if yeah, you, you have that author there to converse with. Um, you know, and that is yeah, maybe you. Yeah, you're looking for answers for today, or maybe you're just asking questions on what's going on there, or making observations on, oh, this is just like X, Y, Z in my life.
0: This is all super helpful for me because there's there's this confusion around the phrase "read a book." So I like to joke that people don't know how to read anymore. Like, obviously, we know how to read words on a page. We know how to read words on a screen. We're all literate. But knowing how to read words on a screen is not the same thing as knowing how to read. Like you sit down and you read a book. That process of shutting off the world, turning on a light, and opening a book. And a book is not the same thing as the information in a book. So like I can download a book onto my Kindle, right? That's just a bunch of information I've downloaded. It's not the same thing as a, as a book. This is just one that I have handy, The Occult History of Feminism. Very interesting book. So it's like, this is this is a book, right? But a book is not the same thing as the... The physical book is not the same thing as the information that I download onto a Kindle. And the process of being literate is not the same thing as knowing how to read. And so I try to, like, how to read a book. So I try to draw these fine distinctions of, of wanting to encourage men to read more books in print, to yeah. engage with them, and to, and to really take them in, not as content, right, but as as nourishment for the heart and the spirit and the soul, really. And so I I think this is hugely relevant for men who are wanting to turn off all the different sources of stimulation and actually take in something that, you know, a book really has the possibility to transform a being. It happens all the time, but how do we allow that to happen these days?
2: Right. I mean, I, I think that's a, I mean, that's a great point of the nourishment and I think on one end to the trans, you know, the transformation, which I have, you know, which I have experienced myself uh, multiple times for reading is you can't quite go in looking for it. I think there's this element here today right. of, you know, uh, like if you look at airport bestsellers, it's all about the transformation and optimization. So people go in looking for this kind of thing. And the problem is is that you can try to uh, like, if you read a law of Ryan holiday, then you'll take his books and you try to turn everything into modern st- to his version of stoicism. Right. And so you kind of push everything through that lens. Um, so, and you ca- and then the other aspect of it is, oh you can read the books to, to transform your life, which is true. But if you go in trying to make it do that, that's when I find people readers will get into hunting pithy sentences. That can serve their worldview. I mean, you can find that in any book, right? Like you can go to Karl Marx Capital and find like, oh, here's this mindset thing. <laughs> like it's it's there if you want, it, right? Uh, but that's not really what he is he's saying in that book, obviously, right? And this is the same thing with Edmund Burke, right? I mean, you, you do the same thing, but that's not really what he's quite saying. So, but if
0: you go ten in, killer mindset quotes,
2: <laughs> yeah, the ten, <laughs> the great Twitter thread. <laughs> Yeah, get the Karl Marx capital mindset bro uh change the world <laughs> literally
0: <laughs> you know? Um buy my course on gumro
2: yeah, yeah i' I'll get your ideas spread uh <laughs> you know it, so but viral. if you if you go in trying to if you go in just having that intimate conversation and realizing things might fly over your head that's okay that I find that engagement is what's going to pull you up into that world of ideas uh, and and Mm -hmm. pull you into that argument that's going on. And then in that moment, when you're taking your time, that's where you might read things that really, really resonate that can really move a needle for you uh, uh, on whatever that may be. It, It might be directly said in the book. It might not be directly said in the book, but there's something about it that suddenly grounds your world view a little bit or opens you up to a worldview or that shows you a different way. And it's something that you feel natural and right and almost instinctual to you that you can do. And it may take time to get there, but there's something about it that really, really resonates uh, with you. And, um, and I think, yeah, versus just trying to like, Oh, um, you know, versus sitting there being like, just give it to me, just give me that idea. isn't really doing it, right? You know, lift yourself up. And that sounds like a platitude, but you wanna, yeah, you're in a room with the author. Have the conversation with him and then see how you feel after it or during it. Like that, I think that's going to lead to that uh beneficial uh insight.
0: So there are a couple different a couple different directions I want to take this and we'll do whichever one first that you prefer. So first I'd like to hear about books that you've read. Lately or throughout your life, that have created that transformation for you, maybe that you weren't looking for. And then another book, because uh, I read your email about this that you read recently, that you, it sounds like you were arguing with off for the entire time was New, Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah. And uh, he's, a, he's, a favorite, he's a favorite punching bag as well. So, you know, on one hand, you have the transformation book where it's like, wow, I got so much more than I expected from this. On the other hand, it's like, man, I just want to punch this book <laughs> in the nose, I suppose. So, whichever one you want to run with first, well, then we'll do the other one. Uh- I guess I'll go with the transformation
2: book. Um, Okay. You know, and it's been a few different uh, books. Um, You know, I could say that the more bigger transformations probably started happening. You know, what I used to do in direct marketing, you know, the copywriting, the kind of the scammy world, there was a couple of things that started kind of kicking me out of that. Uh, Oddly enough, the big sleep by Raymond Chandler, Marlowe's character was, and I didn't, and that's the thing. I didn't expect that him to be a wake up call to me, but it's mm. like, geez, this guy is just so, you know, he, he's not an Eagle scout, but he's very, he has his moral compass and he's unapologetic about himself as, as much of as, as a, as, as a wise ass as he is, he's aware of his flaws, but he knows he's sensitive, not, not sensitive, sensitive in the sense of crying or something, but he's sensitive to how people Work. He's very choosy about who he decides to open up with, uh, man or woman, and, and whatever the the level of the relationship is. He's he's sensitive in that manner. Um, that kind of moved me a little bit. And then it was a uh, of all people, there was a passage by uh, Arthur Schopenhauer. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember when I read that passage, I just I went on a walk for like hours. Uh, you know, and it was about um, if you inherit money, it's not a curse. So when I was scrambling a lot in internet marketing, because my, you know, my dad ran an automotive empire, um, and then I was working in it, and I thought my whole life that this is what I was going to do. And it sold, and then he died of cancer. And for whatever reason, I had this crazy idea that I had to beat his money mark. And that kind of led to this, this relatively unhealthy internal scramble. It was great because it, it provided a good work ethic and motivation. But I was really trying to beat this money mark, and I thought anything that uh, that you know he gifted to me was some sort of curse, and then I had to beat it. And it was a very unhealthy view of it. And uh, you know, when I was kind of getting out of this crazy world of internet marketing, and I read this thing by Arthur Schopenhauer on what, and you know, if you you, you can take your purpose, and if you have a gift of you know, finances behind it, you can do great good in the world. You know, it's a very long passage, and I was like, oh my, you know, and I, that, like the hair rose in my arms. Uh, and I read it over and over and over and over again because i my mind, it's how it works. I can get stuck on something. And I just went for a walk. It was like a gray day out here in Denver, pretty cold. And I just walked for hours, uh, thinking on that passage. Um, Coming more recently, and I I think a big shift that that I didn't quite expect was Edmund Burke's uh, The Reflections on the Revolution of France. Edmund Burke is, I got really very curious on my worldview uh, because I thought I was like, okay, you know, I figure I'm probably more conservative, but I've never looked at it. Um, You know, I went atheist because after my dad passed, the the priest uh, said that $500,000 would get him into heaven. And I was like, come on you know, <laughs> like, you know, doing I'm you like, checks. on like, <laughs> so I was like, I'm atheist. Right. So I had a knee jerk reaction. So I kind of got to a place where I'm like, I've never really looked into this. Right. I, I mean, I, I, like, I just want a knee jerk reaction on, on faith. Like, and I didn't really ever question it. So I, I kind of went into it, you know, and I, I read the more left-leaning authors and stuff. I said, well, this is interesting, but it doesn't, it, it's not, it's not connecting with me right? The, like the, I looked at the political philosophy. I looked at, you know, Red Dawkins and stuff. I was like, it, it just doesn't quite connect with me. Even that the well-argued guys, um, like I found certain, I mean, like some of the atheist people I just found so smug. The only ones I didn't find, I mean, like I, I actually like some of AC Grayling, uh, but I just still found that when he, when he came down to arguments, I'm like, it's a little smug, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. You know, like he has a cool book on the, you know, like the choice of Hercules or something like that, which is, you know, but I just, it, it didn't connect. So I read Edmund Burke, um, you know, cause I said, all right, I'm kind of, I'm tired of the, uh, the more left-leaning views. I'm going to look at the conservative views and, you know, everyone says Edmund Burke is, is the kind of conservative godfather or the, or the kind of the conservative OG as the kids say on Twitter these days. Um, and that was a huge shift, uh, on my worldview, even as far as what to, I was looking for in a uh, romantic relationship with a woman, that was a massive shift. And I didn't expect that, right? Because it's reflections on the French revolution, uh, is more of a satirical work where he's, uh, you know, just, showing all of the issues and he's making all of these predictions of what's going to happen with the french revolution he was it uh, was absolutely right i don't think he expected to be laying out a political framework that you know has shaped uh, one party in america for the last you know, however many years and um but his you know his this his way he looked at people and society that really uh, intrigued me. And then I read his thing on, you know, a, which I think was somewhat of a love letter to his wife. I know the early feminists hated it, uh, but you know, intellect and beauty. I was like, geez, this is, he just is so aware of his values. Uh, that really shifted things for me. And that led me to Thomas soul, which was another big change for me. So to me, what it was in conflict of visions is really big is getting grounded in my worldviews. Um, you know, being this, okay, I, you know, I'm, as far as Thomas Sowell says, I'm, I'm in the constrained worldview, which is generally conservative. And obviously there's a huge spectrum of conservative views from, you know, standard republicanism to libertarianism to, you know, there's out like the neo-monarchy type uh, mm-hmm. crowds out there. Uh, you know, so there's a spectrum. I say, okay, well, I'm definitely in that in that camp. Right, And then seeing, then kind of getting grounded in that and being, made me way more aware of my values. Um, Because I think beforehand, after my dad had passed, um, and then even before when I was, I think uh, when I was working for him, I wasn't quite aware of the political games I was somewhat involved in with his, you know, his kind of, with his direct, his right-hand people. Right, because you know his kid is here, uh, and so we have to. What are we going to do? And I was there to work hard, and you know, so it was kind of like I didn't see that I was getting caught up on things. So for a while, I was very, very unaware of my values, Uh, and I didn't even question what I brought to the to the table. uh, As far as especially in uh, romantic relationships, I never thought I was like I'm just average Joe. Just bring this to the table, right? I never, I never like oh, flew flew way over my head. but then when I, yeah, when I Burke, just whatever reason, he just opened uh, a lot to me. Uh, he opened, like, I'm like, hmm, you know, I know Burke's in a, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to Burke on faith is pretty, pretty good here. He isn't, you know, quite a theo- theologian, but it's an interesting argument here, you know, so that kind of shifted me out of atheism. You know and it's kind of this, this shift into like, well, pantheism kind of makes sense. you know, I might have been reading the Stoics, but it's like now it's like, oh, okay, well, Christian deism makes a lot of sense to me, you know so it's, it's kind of this unique shift where, where um, but that has been important too, in finding my in finding my values and being more grounded. So yeah, so Burke, Sol, yeah, uh, Schopenhauer, <laughs> uh, yeah, those would be the big. And then Raymond Chandler is Philip Marlowe. Those would be the big shifts.
0: Excellent. Well, may I ask some questions about this? Because I'm, I'm super curious.
3: Yes.
2: Um,
0: if you don't mind. Oh, sure. So how far, how far, this is, this is everything that I'm about. Like, I think, I think we all at, uh, as men at various points in our lives are called to change, to change our views or to ask hard questions of ourselves and, or to discard The old answers in favor of new ones as times around us change, or as we change, or as crisis comes in. Like this process of self-recreation is so fundamental to to being a man. And a lot of men at various stages in their lives will be called to that process of self transformation, and will either heed the call or or fail in the call. And this is, I think, this is what Joseph Campbell is really talking about with the hero's journey: is that it's not necessarily some outward call into some literal forest; it can be a call into ourselves, like. Going into the dark places within ourselves—not dark as in wicked, but dark as in unlit—and saying, "Well, what are my values really?" And that takes courage to to kind of go in there. So I'm I'm curious, um, since you mentioned it, because I think it's such an important thing for men. How far into this process are you, and when did this when did this kind of start?
2: With so with, you mean on my journey on values or the
0: yeah. Yeah, like when you picked up when you picked up Burke and was like or when you encountered the Schopenhauer quote for example.
2: Um I I would consider I would definitely call myself a late bloomer. Um same. You know, but it 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 came relatively quickly, but even when it comes quickly like that, um uh, it's kind of a little bit trippy you know it's like uh, is this really is this really happening <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then, then it's yes. kind of like how the heck did I not notice this but like how did I not notice this before and then you know you yeah. have like close friends who I told you that like 20 years ago I'm like well I know but you, know, <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you know, didn't for, mean it for me you know to really open up there was um you know I, I was you know I, I was blessed with, with the with an incredible, uh, father. So, I mean, I had, a wonderful role model, but for whatever reason, um, I just just was not at all aware of my values. Um, you know, and, and I just, you know, I always thought like, I didn't, you know, I I just kind of thought I was an average Joe. I knew I was really very disciplined, but I never considered like what I brought to the table. And then I kind of, I kind of got into very weird relationship choices. Um, you know, and what, what kind of, I think threw me a little bit, like granted I was young, I was in my early twenties. Um, right after my dad died, I got engaged, but it turned out to be a, to a professional confidence artist. And I had no idea.
3: about that. Oh,
2: right. So wow. I, I had no idea that this, so my, I was like, so I was real excited to have kids, start a family. I'm very excited. You know, my dad passes. And then it turns out that i you know, that that's all, it's all a show.
3: Um, you know, so, and that kind of threw my
2: world upside down a little bit. And then I, you know, then the kind of what I said before I read the Schopenhauer thing, this, you know, I I was kind of in this bizarre scramble of trying to find, like, I got to beat this money mark. Um, you know, so I moved from Boston to Denver and I just kind of wasn't, I just wasn't aware of my values at all you know, I just thought I average, average Joe. Then, um, you know, when, when I was working in that sort of, you know, that scammy part of direct marketing, I started off in the seduction space and I went over to health and, and weight loss. I was like, God, was just, I just felt so off. I felt in spiritual limbo, even though the money was fantastic. You know, I was making a ton of money. Uh, and I was like, man, I, I might be able to, I mean, I, I was delusional thinking I was going to be the, you know, the money mark of a automotive empire of like 22 car dealerships and 17 brands. But I was in my mind, like, oh, I can do this with copy. You know, I was making, you know, <laughs> I was making a superb amount of money, but it's kind of like, I, I missed the fact that, okay, this is, you know, it's like, it's, but then I kind of started realizing this is a different beast. Uh, yes. I'm doing great as it is. And, um, but I was in spiritual limbo, right? I couldn't look at myself in the
3: mirror. And, um, I, uh, I
2: was kind of tumbling. I was kind of reaching, right? I was kind of reaching and tumbling towards, there's gotta be something better or there's gotta be something. And I, I've always kind of had that thing. And sometimes that has led to a scramble, but then when I, um, it was really 2020 that I just became suddenly very aware of my values. Um, and I have to give, uh, yeah, it, it was just, you know, I started listening to my friends a little bit or, you know, like, cause I always brushed off a compliment. And even if it came from a woman to like, oh, go, you're a good looking guy. I was like, Oh, you just, they all say that but I wasn't like self-defeating. Like I'm an ego or I'm like, I just thought that's like social tact, you know? So I was kind of like not self-aware of that. And then someone said, have you ever considered what you bring to the table? I was like, what? (laughs) What? it was?" (laughs) That just that simple question in that moment really kind of made me aware of it. And then when I read Burke and just kind of saw this, you know, I realized I'd kind of, moved away from things that I think I was a little bit closer to and I have no regrets for that like I think it's a maturation process for sure but I moved away from things and then I was like geez um you know I I do bring something to the table and again and I'm saying all this I wasn't like this unconfident like oh man I I don't I don't bring anything to the table you know it was just I was I was just very oblivious to it um and then when that sort of hit, and then when, you know, Burke sort of hit with opening up my worldviews. And then, you know, I was reading a lot of Stoicism at the time. And I, and I do like the Stoics, but, you know, Burke kind of, you know, with Aristotle and everything, it just sort of like brought me, it just sort of stoked the fire a little bit. Um, and when I was aware of my values, it just completely changed everything. Um, you know, I, I was way more, confident, uh, in what I was saying and being way more unapologetic. And I don't think there was a huge difference in behavior, but there was something where I was just a little bit more sure and self aware of myself. Um, and, in what I was, I guess in the presence I was bringing or something like that, where it's, you know, something I, I just didn't think of that before. I'm like, I'm just some guy here, right? Where now it's like, okay, well, here, here, you know, now I'm like, here's who I am. Here's what I offer. And it's not, Yeah. I mean, some things I still question because those values came late, but it's like, no, that's, I'm going to go with it. I'm
3: just going to
0: go. I think that's great. I think a lot of men resist defining their values consciously, because as soon as you define your values by choice, you're forced to take a defined shape. This is who I am. This is what I believe. And when you actually know that for sure to, to a relatively high degree, you will, as a man or as a person, naturally encounter others who believe different things and consciously know. And so you, inv- you, you, you take a shape and you invite conflict at the same time. And a lot of men just don't want to do that, right? They just don't want to, they don't want to like lock into actually a form of being because it's easier to just not really take a shape and just flow through situations Versus like, no, this is who I am, this is what I believe, and this is what I'm about.
2: Right. Yeah. It's easy to try to get like a framework of, I mean, I was, you know, in the seduction space, a framework of game or a framework of, or even the success, you know, the business world framework of networking tactics or framework of this or framework of that. You you really end up subjugating or subordinating your, your faculties or your will thinking you need this framework to go do it, to do it all. Not that all of these frameworks are necessarily bad, right? They can help on some element or some way. But it's like you look for this kind of framework to do it for you, uh, hmm. versus bringing yeah bringing yourself uh, to the table.
0: So this helps me understand a lot of the tweets that you write, which are um, which are against the sort of direct marketing kind of scammy copywriting bit. Like I remember <laughs> you were you were writing yeah. a bit about that when I first encountered. It's like oh I appreciate it. No, I appreciate you taking a real strong stance against deceptive marketing tactics and there's a lot of that out there and i do i do the same now like i'm just like look i'm just not okay with some of the values that i'm seeing propagated in lots of ways particularly around the seduction space particularly today you know in 2023 america 2023 the west like you like you look at the burke book you know from what happened in the french revolution and that whole thing propagating forward to today like we can now say that these things are not certain behaviors are not okay we have to say that they're not okay and so that explains that, that that transformation process. Why you're going harder the, the marketing because there's a lot of scamming in that world as well. So that that helps me understand where, kind of what's inspiring that. Like it's a, it's a value. It sounds like it's a values based thing. You know, it's professional. Like this is, this is crap. Stop doing that because you make us all look bad. But for you, it seems like it's coming from a deeper place.
2: No, for for sure. Um, yeah, because there's so much scammy stuff out there, and there's just so much misinformation. Like with, with well meaning people. Uh, I mean, I was just, I don't know if I felt bad or, or not. I, I don't know if you saw, like, Alexander Cortez posted something about intermittent fasting. Uh, you know, he's a big personality. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I'm starting, you know, and he's right, right? It's a, it's a tool to, you know, to uh, easily reduce calories, right? But then in his right. replies, it's like all like these marketing claims where people are taking a science. Man, I remember writing those darn claims. <laughs> like selling a fasting <laughs> program that's it's anti-aging and it's like, my God, like the, it, it's, you know, it's well-meaning people sometimes when they do it, they don't know how to, how to do it. So it's good that people press back on that, but yet boy, does it wade into um, very unethical things. Um, and it's tricky because some people mean well and they're writing the most unethical stuff, but they don't, they're just not aware that they're doing it, um, that they're, you know, propagating and, and spreading all of this kind of nonsense to get people to, to take an action. And they're really weakening their own selves and they probably could be doing a lot better. Uh, but they just, you know, they just get on this conversion train. I mean, I have a whole theory that, yeah, the success, the success world is like its own religion. It's like a polytheism sorts,
0: mm. uh, um, you know, go for it. I'm, I'm now I'm super curious.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the world of or cap, what I call capital S success is, you know, that would entail basically professional and personal self-development. And usually it's, you know, for some sort form of, you know, better income, more funnels, better mindset kind of things. You know, you have everything from the Tony Robbins world to even to the more, as I've seen some of your messages, you know, to the more new wage sort of world yeah. to anything, what you see on what you would call uh you know, you know, how to make 10,000, you know, quit your nine to five and make a million dollars in one month type things. So, you know, it's an mm-hmm. expansive world, but I think there is, uh, it's a polytheism of sorts because things like conversions, uh, attention, funnels, income, revenue, they, they become this sort of, uh, yeah, they become this own deity right? There's not one particular deity, but there's multiple deities, the ones of conversions or the one of attention. And it kind of becomes, you, you, everything is either has to be done for that co- or you have to attain that, or everything is being done through that. So you kind of like a, a small example of it would be if someone is going viral for all the wrong reasons, right? Like The, the guy says uh, <laughs> yeah. something very you know who knows what it is right he's he uh, says something really dumb or he you know he says something that's really racist or he says something that's really whatever just bad or, or stupid um uh, and everyone's like right. um uh, oh no dude he he did this for attention like look at all like you guys are complaining but he's the one getting the the attention here like this is great. engagement bro yeah and it's like it's like you know, all attention is good attention. Like that's kind of like one of those deities. Like, oh my God, this is this guy is great. Like, I think there was a like, but right during the pandemic, there was some uh, idiot guru who posted something like, if you don't come out of this pandemic, you know, learning three new skills or something like that, you're you're a loser. And it went viral, yeah. right? I think even J.K. Rowling uh, mentioned it, right? It, it got, but. I think the kid was well-meaning, right? But it is kind of like, right, if all of these jobs, and he tweeted it right at the time when you know, people are getting, you know, uh, like restaurant workers are losing their jobs. So, you know, if a family of five, uh, you know, and their parents are both, you know, in the restaurant industry, in the restaurant industry, or wherever the restaurant they're in doesn't have really good delivery, all of a sudden they have to be worrying about feeding their kids. Coming out of it, learning how to speak French, you know, or learning a new uh, income secret skill, like public speaking, it, that sounds very condescending and trite, right? Yeah. But he's sitting there like, oh, I'm getting all this engagement, bro. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And people are like, wow, how'd you do this? It's like, no, you see, he, he, he's, going, he's getting engaged for all the wrong reasons, right? Because if you move that argument over and you say, uh, Jeff Epstein gets a lot of engagement. Well, not exactly for the (laughs) right reasons, right? Like he's not getting good attention, Um, you know, but they don't understand that. So they worship, they think that this is really great engagement. Right. Um, I mean, I get it too. Like there's this, if I criticize someone, right? Like I've criticized uh, like Alex Hormozzi. It's very unclear to me as to what he does. If I criticize him, it's like, oh, bro, you're doing contrarian take, nice engagement tactic.
0: Cloud chasing, bro.
2: (laughs) I'm not doing a contrarian take for an engagement tactic to push my newsletter or something like that, right? That I find something off with what's going on, and I may or may not be wrong, but I'm going to stand up and say something. Uh, You know, so there's this weird element there. Then also there's this odd element of you can't criticize anything. Um, you know, so that's kind of this religious zealot aspect of success. So, we, you mentioned that the sapiens thing. Like, if you criticize like that, the guy who I criticized in, in that article, his name was Nat Eliason, and I wasn't necessarily going a- after him. He was kind of I was using uh, right. him as an avatar for things I've seen about uh, sapiens, especially in the success world. But you can't say anything bad about it. It's life changing. Is that if you call something bad, it's because you're have psychological issues. You're a hater. You're jealous. You're this. You're that. There's this instant trained knee jerk reaction. Uh, I mean, he accused me of having psychological issues to go get help because I criticize him, right? And, and it's wow. just very, it's incredible how powerful this is. Uh, like even when I call out, you know, scammy copywriters, you know, they just say I'm a hater who's a poor, a poor, broke loser. So they immediately have, you know, they immediately cast you as a sinner, but not just a sinner, but something that needs like persecution. Like you're a poor, broke loser. Like, so yeah. like everyone who criticizes, you know, if you criticize Grant Cardone, you're a poor, broke loser. Uh, you know, like I, I thought like Grant Cardone even made this very cringy video about uh, CoffeeZilla about saying how CoffeeZilla is poor and broke and this and that. I mean, I'm sure Grant Cardone's mind probably exploded when CoffeeZilla was on Joe Rogan. Cause a lot of these gurus just <laughs> fantasize about being on Rogan. Um, so, you know, there's this quick knee-jerk uh, us versus them with it, right? And, and there's, but there's a set thing of like sayings and almost maxims. If you get criticized, oh, you're, or you must be mad, bro. You jealous? So it's just this weird thing. And then you even see like the, the, fan, the fans of this stuff or the acolytes of this stuff. You know, like if I criticize, say, whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, say Alex Hormozzi again, like his fans will come on, like, you're just jealous, bro. You'll never be a billionaire like he is. Billionaire? <laughs> and then a lot of will come yeah. like, oh, you don't, you don't get the conversions like he does, or he doesn't get, you get the attention he does. You're just using his name there, you know. And, and it's just like this immediate defense of it. Right. Um, and it, it's not quite like a, you know, a, a trolling or a, you know, or, or an argument or a debate. Like I mean, sometimes you see on like the political Twitter, you know, people will troll each other all the times and it's, you know, it's full of snark and everything, but it's just weird kind of like defense of this, of this thing. Right. It, it, it's not, uh, you know, it, it's, not, it's not like, president Biden and Donald Trump, like snipe, you're attacking each other on Twitter. It's like this weird defensive things. Um, yeah. and it, you know, you're, you're outside the mold. You don't understand. Um, so, and it becomes, but it really becomes this way of life. This very anxious, inducing habits, the mindsets, the got to go to the events. You got to spend money on it. You got to go to this. You got to, it's conversions. You got to level up. You got to read the books in this way. You got to say, read this book. You got to do this. So it really, it becomes this, it's just this weird, bizarre, I I think, polytheism. There's my
0: long rant. That's a really, no, that's, that's a really, uh, I get it because I can see the exact same thing modeled in the new age world where it's like from a Christian framework, it's like works based salvation in a cult of personality. Yeah. Right. Like the cult of personality. Yeah, exactly. And and, because I did a whole podcast episode about cults of personality where um, money and attention flows upwards, so that you get a sense of belonging, and that belonging is is framed by whoever this individual man kind of says is popular. So it's like, well, I'm going to go along with this team, and I'm going to belong to this cult of personality. And it's about the guy, it's not about the ideas. And that's, I think, that's a really dangerous trap that a lot of men fall into. And I, I had kind of, I know it exists in the New Age world, and I, I can, I know it in the, exists in the masculinity space. But now that you describe it that way. Yeah, I can absolutely see that in the six in the capital S success world for sure.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, cause it, they, yeah, it's, it's a live or die by it. Yeah, because it's not, I mean, there's no, I mean, in a sense, there is a cathedral. I mean, you can go see, you know, live, learn how to be a live speaker, and it's all framed and everything. And it's all part of you're showing these motions. Like I know, I mean, I've been in plenty of events where where they, you know, it's like, oh, we sold so many courses at this event. But one of the things is it's a it's this passage of, right. If you're the first person to stand up, say like a Dan Kennedy event, you're the first person to stand up and go get a course. You're, you are signifying to the, you're signaling to the others, mm. your righteousness, that you are a hustler, that you are this, that you are part of it. Um, wow. you know, so then everyone else is like, well, I better invest in myself because then it's like, if you're, for those of you standing up, I guess you just want to be left behind. Right. So it, it, and then, you know, so that's a, just one element of it. Right. And then after that, then you got to go to the networking thing. Then you got to go to this and you got to pay, pay, pay to, to be in it. And then, then of course, yeah, then it goes into all of the other things I just, I just mentioned, but yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating world.
0: That's, I mean, that sounds really, it sounds really dark. Right. But I mean, I can understand how it go. Go ahead.
2: Oh, I was going to say, yeah, it, it is. And I think it gets there quickly. The, the thing, I think a lot of people think I hate anything gurus or hate anything, uh, you know, motivational or hate anything like that. But that isn't the case because I think it's it's a lot of people and it's reaching for better, right? Um, it's a lot of people who want to do better or who are, who are raising their hand in some way, shape or form to do better. And Not everyone is going to do better because it's easy to get caught up in that world's I'm going to read all the habit books, the mindset books, the marketing books. I'm going to read all this, but that kind of becomes procrastination as, you know, and they don't realize it, right? They're posting, but they're doing the work. They're doing what it takes. they are doing everything, but they're just focused on so many superfluous things. Like their motivation is, is on the wrong sorts of things. And it's the same thing, sort of a new age. I mean, new age is there's still people who kind of reaching in a different way for some spiritual something. And New Age offers it in weird ways, like, you know, get ripped through yoga, but then also have your chakras li- lined up to the next divine spirit of multiple worlds. What?
0: You know, You're good at that.
2: Uh, <laughs> you know, well, he wanted to get ripped through yoga first. Like, you know, so good for you. <laughs> but I was like, what? Yeah. Where did that, that just went <laughs> off? Slow down there. So, but it, it so quickly does slide into that darkness. Um, as well intentioned as it is, it's so quickly, and and it's not malicious, right? Some people on, on mindset people, you know, they're not going to be, you know, they're, they're really not. They might be like annoying to sit next to on a plane where they're just telling about mindset and hustling. You're just like, just please leave me alone. Like, okay, got it. You know, mindset hustle, <laughs> right? So, but, but they're not, you know, but they're. It's like this this spinning hamster wheel that they're on where all their motivation is on this one thing where it, it just like just one little step off that hamster wheel and on, onto their purpose or onto something else or being a little taking some time to reflect is going to put them on a much better more grounded path I'm like no i need the next tony seminar no i need the next whatever new age whatever they, they anger orgasm seems to be the thing over there you know it's, there's, that's like everywhere <laughs> It's like anger Plus, to organize. I
3: don't
2: I don't know. It's just, I don't, just sounds
0: now funny. I'm gonna look it up and I'm gonna yeah, regret yeah. it.
2: Um, <laughs> yeah, so but it, okay. it's unfortunate because I think it is a lot of well-meaning people who uh and of course there's always there's a lot of bad apples in, in it, uh but it's a lot of well-meaning people and they just get very um uh, just led into very weird alleys.
0: And I think the gurus themselves whether it be success or new age or or hustle or whatever i think they get kind of led into it as well where it's like they start to get a little bit of taste of the money and the attention and and it a little it becomes like maybe they got into it originally because they care but then they but then there's the the almighty god of oh well you got to scale you know you got to scale this you got to do more with less and so you slowly start bringing back quality and more and I think, I think it ensnares, like there are the bad actors who go in knowing that they can deliver little and get a lot if they package it the right way. But I think it also becomes very dangerous for the men going into this and women for that matter who start to mistake themselves for the object, right? Now, this isn't about me. This is about helping these people. Mm-hmm. I think that gets very fuzzy very quickly if the people don't have their, like we're talking about, they don't have their values properly aligned. How are you going to navigate through you know, six figures and, you know, speaking engagements and all that, like, unless you know really who you are, how are you going to survive that with your soul intact?
2: Right. Uh, I mean, that's, I mean, I've seen a lot of, of that happened, you know? Um, yeah, they, I mean, there's guys, even just on a basic financial element, there's a lot of men in it where suddenly like where that income hits and they're, they think, even though they made a million, they might have spent a million to make that million, but they forgot that they spent that million and they think they're now millionaires. And they're like, well, I got to start living like a millionaire in order to keep making more, to drive myself to make more. And I've seen that wipe out so many people. Uh, I mean, there are so mm-hmm. many people. I mean, I was in the ClickBank affiliate world who have come and gone. Uh, like, you know, my, one of my first years going there, you know, I got invited to this party and it was at the, a, uh, uh, you know at a, at a whatever right on the top of the Vegas uh, casinos there you know the suite and, and this thing was just like outrageous but those guys in like f- inside of a year were completely bust, broke and completely like had to move back to home like gone vanished. gone all of it gone um, but it is easy because if in that world it, it's its own echo chamber in a sense and if, I mean, I noticed in success, if you do well, like if you write a couple of hit offers and you go to an internet marketing party, uh, and you're a, you know, somewhat attractive man or girl, all of a sudden you're like, you know, you're like a rock star to this tiny little world and it, it can get kind of, yeah, it, it can go to your head very easily. And you think like you, you run the world, um, or you don't realize that Grant Cardone might be doing a, you know, he, he's just, he knows what he's doing, right? Like he he turns it like some guys can do a shtick and they can turn it off. And some of them, they just try to become the shtick and it just becomes very sad. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they try to live their life by this particular shtick and it gets very, very uh, sad, you know, and then they keep slithering into new, new things and they try to keep, you know, living this life. And it's just, it gets very sad. They're very self unaware, man. There are some relationships in there that, that are just, Oh, it's just, just toxic disasters but you think like oh my partner she's also a hustler right okay you know that's great that you know she's hustles on her internet marketing but what values aside from that are you guys concerned about versus trying to do affirmate you know uh, tony robbins platitudes to each other to express your hustle love like <laughs> it's not it's not quite gonna work you know um uh, Yeah. So it is unfortunate and it is, it can be, yeah, very misleading in many ways.
0: And I think these are the downsides of, um, of success that gets hidden behind the shininess and the the photographs and the reels or whatever, where it's like this world becomes very cutthroat where you're, you get access to these rooms because you're on a winning streak. But what happens if you hit a losing streak? right or what happens if you decide that you don't want like you've made your money and you want to cash out like will these people still be your friends or are they all in this room because they enjoy competing and one-upping each other like they're all trying to achieve the high score it's not actually about friendship connection brotherhood you know that's maybe how it's framed that's how the photographs are put together but it's still you're still swimming with sharks and they're not eating you this week but you might be on the menu next week but you can't see that No, you can't see that in the world. You just see like, I want, I want into the room. It's like, are you sure you want into the room?
2: And the, and the crazy thing is, you know, and I'm, you know, and I've seen it, um, especially much more on the marketing side and, you know, might not be, well, I I have seen some of it in the new age world as well. Yeah. But you know, in the marketing side, there are, there are all these guys like, like who suddenly make it big. And they're just borrowing the money, blowing the money. But there's kind of these more behind the scenes players. Like the guy I was with, the company I was with was very behind the scenes. And then there's kind of like this, I don't know, this scent you put off that you're in that behind the scene world, you know, and these guys are doing their things and they're looking at these guys like these guys are idiots, but they're looking at them too. Like I can make money off of this guy, right? Like they, they just wrote by chance, they lucked out with this massive offer making a ton of money. So then immediately they come in and like, here, I'm going to make you a ton more money, but they don't tell them like, as soon as you dry up, I'm kicking you to the curb. Right. So it's almost like this unspoken, like insider music industry of the sixties. Like, Oh, if you can't do the the hit singles anymore, see ya. You know, and I kind of, you know, and it was, um, and a lot of guys don't realize that, right? Like they don't realize that they're paying $100,000 to be in this mastermind, but the guy is working on the mastermind. And there's plenty of other people there where he would never dare ask, ask for $100,000 to be in the mastermind because he knows that guy is a, is, is a behind the scenes sort of guy. Um, you know, they're not out there boasting about themselves or they're, you know, they're not out there spending a ton of money. There are some guys who know how to turn it on, but they know where to turn it off. And it's a very different. Thinking a lot of these guys, but they, a lot of men especially want to believe that's that face value right away. That this is what they're like all the time. I'm going to pay this. Like, uh, uh-uh. uh, like if you're really good, you're going to get invited to kind of see behind these curtains a little bit. And that, you know, that changes uh, things. And it's, it's very, not a lot of guys see that behind the, scenes scenes thing is it's not really like you know, it was no like cabal back there <laughs> i mean um <laughs> right. i mean it somewhat is like when when there's all types of deals like when you find out that you know for affiliate for the world of affiliate marketing on a page like clickbank it's really three or four people who've been on that front page for years and it's a battle between each other and there's a couple of guys who'll come through the cracks but they're battling for each other but no one else really understands that they're like no i'm gonna make it like mm, you can but you also have to realize that there's three or four players that have been doing this for a long, long time behind the scenes. And they're, you know, they are bull sharks, white sharks. and They're just 100% predators. They know exactly what they're doing. Uh, but yeah, a lot of people just, they just don't want to realize that, right. They're just so focused on the hustle and hype and I'm going to make it.
0: Yeah. They're, you're meat, you know, yeah. it's like, if you, it, like, I remember when I was in Las Vegas, I played, uh, I was never any any I was never great at, but I did enjoy playing Texas Hold'em. So mm-hmm. I went to Vegas with family and decided I'd go into the Texas Hold'em room. And I walked into the room and I sat down. and I was like, Yeah, no, yeah, no. I could just feel, I could just feel that like this is a this is a when I say dangerous, like not physically dangerous environment, but you can just kind of get a sense that all these guys exactly know what they're doing. This is not casual for them. I'm meat, pass. Like I'm just here to have a good time and play some cards. These guys are here to take the whole table and i am like i'm not going to compete on that level with that and i think you can walk into rooms like that and you can feel that like no this is this is a uh, this is predatory this is law of the jungle this is this is war and, um, yeah, and I I, that gets missed
2: yeah i got that like the first time when i when i became known that i was one of the people from from one of the offers i was with uh it was at like a traffic and there's a big event called traffic and conversion that's run by Ryan Dice and then when the event had ended um when I was in the room with like, I, I didn't really speak to Ryan Dice, but I was in a room with other guys and I'm like, man, they just completely played that room. You know, there thousands of people buying this I mean, they're really good at it. no one, no one, you know, and now like, if I go out and call Ryan Dice, it's like, you're a jealous broke or a loser. And I was like, okay, <laughs> well, and it's like, I can't define yeah. them. Like I have been in the room. Right like I, I've been in that exact same thing with like the high players that they're in this room and it is a different it is, it is the there is a respect and some of them there's like you know they some of these guys viscerally hate each other which is pretty funny um you know but there's there is kind of a respect there um with it and it's uh it's just yeah it's just it's just different it's very odd it's like wow this is this is a lot different <laughs> Uh, like these guys don't know what they're doing out there. They're, you know, the, the, the ones that are, that are meat. and they're successful, right? They're, 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 driven, they're motivated. They're trying to do better, but they're believing at face value. And it's like, man, can't you just, can't you see what's going on in the room here? Can't you, can't you read it? But I just, yeah, it's tough.
0: Yeah. I mean, just, to, just to back up for a second for, to the conversation of values, you know, and defining what your values are when you as a man define or we as men define our values, this is what happens is you suddenly recognize that you can't just fit into any room that you want to fit into, right? If you know what your values are, this is who I am, this is what I believe, this is what I'm about. And I've thoughtfully considered them and I've read the books and I've, I've given you know real real effort into forming what these are based on my experience and reason, and all these things together. And now I know this is who I am. It's like, oh, I can't fit into this room anymore. I can't connect with these people anymore. I can't do this thing anymore. And it can become very disorienting for men to, to actually take a defined shape because then they know they're like, wow, I'll never actually survive in that room full of bull sharks because I just don't care enough to try and twist myself into a shape where I can do this. Like it takes a piece of me to try and do that.
2: Right. And I think it was, the thing is that that room, they recognize that they can't, you know, from my experience, that they, they can't really touch you when, you when you're like that. You know, they'll, they'll give you some sense of respect, but they're not going to try to hit you up for things. Um, it's just very different, you know, and some of the times it's, it's intimidating to them, you know, um, because you can ask them a question and, the, and they'll get real ruffled with it. Um uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it is grounding
3: when you realize like, I don't, like, I, I don't need these guys. Like I'm not part of us, mm-hmm. you know? Um, Yeah.
0: So so as you've kind of started living in this way, how has it affected, how has it affected your writing? we talked about reading and the books and you know how transformative that's been and sort of how it's affected your, I guess you might say your personal, the overlap of your personal and professional life, but how has it transformed your writing? And and actually how did you go from how did you go from working for an auto empire into writing in the first place? I guess it was through copy, right?
2: Yeah. Well, to start there, <laughs> yeah. Um the, so the auto empire thing happened and, uh, at, at the time, this is before the girl who, who, you know, threw my life upside, uh, down because it was all uh, yeah. a show. Um, wow. I was with a, just a, a you know, what it was a 20, 26, 25. I was with a, a girl who was, I mean, she's a complete Coke addict, uh, complete alcoholic. I mean, just wild, wild partier, uh, you know, it was a serial cheater um, kind of thing. And, and it's just, I mean, I didn't know. I mean, I, I was just young and I'm like, oh, you know, and coming into money, I'm like, oh, she's pretty, you know, I, I, so I didn't really know. But, but also was, my focus was on, my, my dad was, you know, it was, my focus was on the cancer thing. So after he had passed, I got into, uh, this was like 2008, I got into like the, the uh, pickup world. So like, I was scared to break up with this girl, even though she was a Coke addict, but I was in that place. I I was so scared to break up. And I found this letter online and, uh, and and then I used it and then it worked, right? It was like a direct marketing thing. I didn't notice it. And then I kind of got into it and I was like, oh my God. Right. So at first (laughs) I was doing like the pickup thing, but then I moved to Colorado and I kind of, I kind of dropped the, the, the PUA thing, but I was still somewhat interested in it because this was. I, I don't think all of that world was entirely bad. There's, I mean, I've met a lot of those, the, I mean, if you want to know what pickup artists are at, at an event, it's the one where all the women are running out of a room. Um, because after they tried their weird, their weird lines. Uh, but there were some guys in it who, who actually, I, I think were very male, very well-meaning because it was before kind of the ride, you know, it, it drastically changed versus what it is now. Um, but I sort of stopped it, but then I, I moved to Colorado and was looking like, I got to get back into work, right? Like I I was kind of coaching my old ski team, but I I was feeling like calling to do something. And then I saw, I tried the auto business for a hot minute. I'm like, I'm not doing it. Um, You know, I I still either, I just need more of a break uh, from this. And um, I saw an email saying, you know, position available is Dow of Badass, which is the name of this company. And so I was like, all right, well, I I like their book. I'm like, "It's, it's in Denver. And they said, I'll I'll just show up. Like, you know, I have nothing else to do. It's on a Thursday. (laughs) And I walked in and it was in in a basement. And and like an old house in Denver. And I'm like, what is this? I mean, I'm used to the car business. You know, (laughs) I'm like, what? What? These guys aren't making any money. And they said like, hey, can you write, uh, can you sell us this thing and write it? And I was like, all right. So I gave it a crack. And I just like threw out all the car sale stuff I knew to try to sell this, this one item. I think they kind of just gave it like a, you know, it wasn't like a dating product. It was just something like, it. I was like, all right, I'll just try to sell it. And they like, all right, well, we'd love for you to show up. And I'm like, well, this is really weird. I don't know what this is. So I'll just, I'm going to come in tomorrow and, and see. Then I kind of just kept coming back. And then they started saying the amount of money they were making. I'm like, there's no way. There is no <laughs> way. These guys, these ragtag people in these basements are, are making money like this. I mean, they just said they made like $3 million last month. I was like, There's just, no way. No way. <laughs> uh, so, but I just, the guy, uh, and I was like, all right, I'll just keep showing up. Because this is so titillating as far as like how weird it is. Right? And they mm-hmm. kept having me, and I was writing emails. I had no idea that I was doing copywriting. Zero idea. They just had me do emails. I'm like, oh, whatever. Like, I this is just so weird. I got to do it. Um, and then the owner, his name was Josh Pelissier. Uh, He's like one of these seduction guys. Very odd guy. Uh, he said, "You have what it takes to be a great copywriter." And he goes, "You're a new copywriter." What? And, I was like, uh? and like, by the way, we're number one on ClickBank. And I was like, what? How do you ClickBank? What? What's that? <laughs> and when I like, I should know. Like, I've been there for four days, like doing this stuff. <laughs> Like, and then he said, go home and read the Halbert letters. And that was it for me. I, and I, cause my dad was a little bit of a prepper and I remember all like the survival magazines. And then I kind of, I found it through the Halbert letters. I was like, Oh my God, this is the stuff I was reading as a kid. Like the, you know, defeat any man. <laughs> you know? um, oh wow. I said, oh my God. And so I was like, yeah, I can do this. This is crazy. Uh, and I just kind of started doing that and then I left the, the seduction thing. Um, Oh, so it was a 2013 or 14. I got into health and, and weight loss, and I thought that was going to be cleaner than the seduction. It isn't. Uh, way scambier. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was there. Yeah, I was there for until I left. And then the crazy thing was. So at that point, uh, you know, I was writing emails for 15 different lists. Um, it has various different personalities. The feather in my cap offer was for an offer called Yoga Burn, which was uh, just kind of came o- almost up out of the blue. Um, but I knew I was lying to people, right? Like I, I was looking at myself in the mirror and, uh, I said, I, today, my day is going to be how to get around the lawyers. how we can get around Google's legal to get back onto Google. I'm like that's my day today to figure out how I can rhetorically dance around mm-hmm. this stuff. So the scariest thing. So I stopped. I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, so, and I knew I felt the calling. I, I loved writing. And so I knew I wanted to do my, my website and I knew I wanted to you know, kind of call out gurus and I wanted to talk on, re- I had no idea where it was, was going to go. But I was like, I'm just going to call out gurus. I'm just going to start writing about this world. But uh, it was a catharsis because I had spent so long writing as that copywriter. And when I started to write, I, it was scary to write as me. It took me almost two years before I was happy. I was in a fortunate place where I didn't have to you know, work for anyone, but it took me two years to finally like, just, I wrote every single day and it took me two years of finally being like, oh, okay. Like, cause I would sit down and write and a sales letter would pour out and was almost like, I can't, I, I don't know how to write as me. It was very scary, wow. right? Cause I was so good at writing copy and so good at writing these different personalities and so good at, in, in, in particular, like three different personalities that when I sat down as me, I was like, I, I don't know where I am on us. So I just kept studying writing. I just kept studying writing and I kept just writing, writing, writing. And then eventually it's like, okay, I think I have something I, I it's either now or never before I go live. And that's so why I put it out there. And never since then, um, you know, that was 2020, but finding my values has, um, I'm sure my worldview comes across my writing, but I, I'm more unapologetic about it. Right. Cause I, I am conservative, but I'm not going to try to take that out. Not that I'm trying to give partisan stances on you know, Tony Robbins. Like here's the, you know, here's the classical liberal take on Tony Robbins or something. I mean, no, 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 Um, But it has come out. And I think it has taken a groundedness in, um, in just how I express myself. I'll always, every time I publish something, I always think it's the worst thing that's ever been on, put on the internet. Um, and I don't ever want that vibe to go away. It, it's because it, it always drives me to do better for the next time. But I, I am noticing a confident and in, in my style. Uh, I'm noticing that I'm able to, you know, express myself unapologetically. I'm able to put out the points that I want unapologetically. Um, uh, and I like that I can kind of uh come at it from different angles. So there is certainly. And knowing my worldview, knowing my, my grounded things, and again, like I'm not going to, I'm not really going to, I might make some, you know, a political joke or something or a pejorative joke or something, on it. but it, it's not going to come out. Like I'm not trying to make it political, but I know that if it's in the fabric of my writing, I'm not going to try to tone it down uh, in any way, shape or form. So I, I'm going to make it unapologetically mine. And, uh, you know, and I do have the readers in, in mind, because that's a thing. Everyone's like, oh, write for the reader, write for the reader. I'm like, well, first, I'm, I don't have any readers, so I'm going to write for myself. And then <laughs> right. I'm just kind of, you know, then I was kind of like an introvert. Uh, uh, I'm like, well, I'm just going to keep writing for myself. And and I'll figure the people who want to sit down and talk to me are, are going to read this. Whoever's going to read it will will enjoy it. And so I've just gone from there. So I don't have like an avatar of readers. There's standards that I hold myself up to. Um, and those are different writers, but it's like, okay, I'm just going to put out there. And of course, I there is a thing like, I'm not just going to totally write it to myself. Uh, it, that would be a lot of rambling. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> and Inside jokes no one would ever get. Um, but yeah, there is this aspect of, of getting a, a finding a footing in that and then you know with readers and feedback i'm like okay this is this is connecting with the people i wanted to connect with and it's yeah that's been a yeah like i said it was like a two-year process to finally write it as myself but since then and finding that value, there's a lot more confidence uh in the fabric of what i'm writing uh you know, mm-hmm. you know i i see that my views how they evolve how they some are you know uh Firmer, in my opinion, some it's like I I don't really hold that view as strongly anymore. Um, And that has, yeah, again, to keep repeating myself, it's definitely put a confidence in what I'm, you know, what I'm writing.
0: Hi, everyone. I just want to reiterate how excited I am to have Reformation Coffee Company as the official sponsor of the Renaissance of Men podcast. This isn't a casual sponsorship either. I've actually tried their products. And as you've heard me say before, I really enjoyed the Guatemala roast. In fact, it's one of the favorite coffees I've had in a long time. So to be able to connect with the CEO and founder, Brandon Lansdowne, and to find out that their mission is aligned with mine is a real blessing. You're going to be hearing a lot about them in the weeks coming up. But before I start talking about my personal experience with their products, I think it's important that you get to know who they are. Now, I know that all my listeners to this podcast are super loyal. It's something that means a lot to me. So if you've been with me on this journey for a long time, what I'm really hoping to do is embarrass Brandon with his success. Certainly I know about how much courage it takes to take a private hobby and go pro with it. And that's what Brandon has been doing over the past year. He's been roasting for 15 years, but it's only recently that he's decided to bring his coffee roasting skills to the world. And so what I'd like you to do is to go and help him celebrate by buying some of his Pride and Joy coffee. Hopefully together, the entire Renaissance of Men community can help him see that he made the right decision coming on board this podcast. So again, go to ReformationCoffee.com and enter the code SUBFREE to get one free bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. And now I'd like to read for you the Reformation Coffee Company manifesto or mission statement so you can get a sense of who and what they are. Reformation Coffee Company is a small specialty roaster in Springfield, Missouri. As a pastor of a Reformed church, I pride myself on providing time and attention to freshly roasted, high-quality coffee. I seek to provide a superior product and service all to the glory of God. From roasting in a Whirly Pop popcorn popper for friends and family 15 years ago to a five-pound commercial roaster today, it's been a dream come true for me and my wife. We love serving our customers and hearing how much they enjoy drinking our high-quality coffee. For us, our goal is to build into Christendom through serving the Reformed Christian community by providing the highest quality coffee and thus reforming our community's coffee habits as much as they've reformed their theology. Make no mistake, our intention is to be the coffee company to our Reformed community and convince churches to stop supporting woke, feminist, and godless multinational coffee companies. And while we are determined to primarily serve the Reformed community, you can be certain that our coffee is so great that even a Catholic will love it. Our promise to you. 1. We will serve God and glorify His name with our business. 2. We will strive to serve you the highest quality, freshly roasted coffee. 3. We will roast your coffee within two days of your order. 4. We will ship your coffee within three days of your order and so that's who they are. I hope you can see that Reformation Coffee and the Renaissance of Men are a match made in coffee heaven. Again, go to ReformationCoffee.com and enter the code SUBFREE to get one free bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. Thanks so much, and let's see if we can bless Brandon Lansdowne and his family and his church and his community with an embarrassment of riches of godly success. That's interesting. I've, I've kind of been watching this. I can see that I've been I've been watching this now without really knowing what I was watching because I first heard about you from uh, from Sean Smith. He spoke very yeah. highly of your of your copywriting. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. You, you know, I know Sean. Sean's a friend, and so it's like anyone he speaks that highly, you know, uh, glowingly of. I'm like, okay, I'm going to pay attention to that because he's a pretty credible guy and the things that he knows a lot about. And and as I've encountered your work, uh, what I what I've seen. Is that self-expression of your values beginning to come beginning to come out, which is really cool now that I know kind of like what that is? Because it sounds like in a way you've been on this profound journey of like it's it's like it's simultaneously self-unlearning and self-learning. Like, okay, who am I not? Like you said, you're sitting down to write you write for yourself, and these different copywriting personalities are coming out. It's like I have to get all that out of my head so I can see who I actually am in there and when you put that together with discovering values like that's that's a very powerful life turning point for any man like when i empty out all the programming from my head of who i've who i've chosen to be by my life path and who my career has made me into and who what i thought i was doing and all that when i empty all that out and see what's actually inside what's that, what what's left inside and what that guy believes and then learning how to express it like that's that, that's really incredible actually like i really honor you for that
2: no oh, thank you yeah it, it's I mean, it's, it was a catharsis. I mean, the first, yeah, from 2018 to 2020, I mean, I, I didn't publish a thing, but I just sat down and wrote every single day. Oh, wow. Uh, I was like, I don't know where this is going to go. <laughs> you know, like, right. uh, I mean, there, there were things like, um, you know, and this is a bit of a side tangent, but in copy, I had, I had literally forgotten what a verb was. Uh, and a noun and so, and even grammar. And then I, I really, uh, started studying a guy named Brian Garner. I guess you could say he was, he was, um uh, you know, kind of one of those books that I've read that shifted things. And I got a chance to meet Brian Garner in person and he's, he's just a fantastic guy in person. Um, very, very smart. And I think he might've been kind of encouraged me, like just write for yourself. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, there was this real catharsis thing of learning how to use the language of the writers I liked and the books I liked because I was so sick of like the Seth Godin stuff. Um, And even now when I'm editing, it's still like I have to really slow down to spot like a grammatical mistake. Like I can recognize it, but if it's a really long sentence, but it's like I have to really, really slow down. And usually, it takes me after I publish it. Then I read it on my phone, kind of like manically, a couple of times the next days later. I'm like, "How did I miss that?" (laughs) (laughs) Right. um, But like that has been part of the catharsis is is learning how to use. You know, I was making a lot of money from the words I was writing, but now it was now it's learning how to use the language and the words to express myself in a clear manner to a standard that I'm upholding myself to, Um, and I'm gaining more confidence in that, having more fun with it you know it's, a, it's like the constraints were coming off and my style is starting to come out uh in my how i'm expressing myself and also it's kind of weird at moments uh, you know because at first like a lot of copywriters came my way i'm like well i don't always want to be doing copy and now yeah, it's, like, it's shifting towards something that i think there's something bigger out there like the success there's something about that that I'm moving myself towards because I didn't want to go down the Coffeezilla route. That's nothing against like Coffeezilla. Uh, I think he does great work, but it's like, I'm not going to be just, my whole Twitter thing is not just going to be calling out gurus. I mean, I'll, I'll call them out. but I, It's not, it's not gonna be like my, that's not my, my whole purpose. Um, so it, yeah, it is a fun journey, like relearning language and expressing. And then, uh, you know, then trying to hold myself to, to, uh, you know, someone like Neil Ferguson, you know, trying to hold myself to his standard of, of writing or something. is uh, a lot of fun.
0: I, I know personally, a lot of men who are, who are very interested in, in developing their writing skills. Maybe they came, you know, from their own personal fitness journey or they're, they're definitely into developing their bodies and they've done a great job with that. And now they're working on developing their hearts and developing their minds. And and they put themselves into writing, and so I think they'll probably hear themselves reflected in a lot of things that you're saying. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, about your writing journey, your writing process, what that has what that has looked like for you? For the men who are listening, who are like, well, wow, I'm actually who would be curious about, you know, okay, well, how does how does Jim go about doing what he, especially during that two year period where you wrote for two years every day without publishing anything? Like, what a grind. But I mean, that's that's kind of where it all comes from in a way. Yeah.
2: I mean, and that was that two year period, I was still doing my one meal a day. Um, and I, I was still, I, I mean, I, I sleep till 7am now, but I was still getting up at 5am then. Uh, uh. uh, but it's funny now that, it, yeah, the more I left that world, the more, the more sleep I ended up getting. So I get like, I get Days like 10 night. hours every night. <laughs> um, you know, the, the process you know, when I was doing copy, not that copy is bad per se, you know, a lot of copywriters are, are trying to focus on the solutions and the headlines. And, but and really good copywriters, they understand structures really well and they understand the simple language really w- well. And they're not, you know, so you know how to keep it simple, but you know, the process is a little bit different, I think, than just pure writing. Like, you know, when you start managing 15 email lists and all that stuff, I mean, I got the one gift I got from copywriting is. You know, like if I'm staring at my computer right now, I'm like, oh man, how have I only written 300 words? And all of a sudden, 20 minutes later, it's like 2,000 words, you know, it's like, you know, mm-hmm. you, you just learn how to do it really fast. Not that you need to, but, um, you know, the, the process there, you know, to kind of go touch back on the copy for the the process now um, and then how I kind of got out of that process was, yeah, it really was how can I present this particular product in a, in the light that need needs to be presented. Do we need clicks? Do we need this? You know, I was constantly looking more towards that goal of what I need the customer to do and kind of the, what simple, what is the best structure and the best language that can make that happen as fast as possible. Um, and then I always liked, how can I raise doubts? And, you know, so, so they, they rate, they have something that they're using now. How can I raise doubts in what they're using now and make them want to do something else here. Am I going to use a little bit of fear? Or am I going to use something else X, Y, Z? Uh, and you know, you can use those skills for good. It doesn't have to be dishonest in any way, shape or form. Uh, you know, you can, you know, move something, uh, or move someone off of something, uh, to, in order to push your product. So I don't think all copy is unethical. Uh, you know, so if you want to use, you know, hint at some fear, you can do that. I think it's more unethical when you're lying about price and promise and, and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, so that, that's the, the copy side, the, the two year catharsis side was, I really did start studying language. I started like doing uh, just writing exercises and, and regular writing books. I'm like, I don't know what a verb is, so I better learn what a verb is. You know, like, I, I don't know how, I mean, I had like a vague idea and it's like, geez, when I was in high school, I did great with grammar. You know, I had, a, I went to like a very demanding high school and, the, and they had a grammar test and I always did, I always aced it. I'm like sitting here, I'm like, I regressed. So, like, but then um, I, I, you know, for me, it, it's, you know, it's going to be different for, for different people. So if you're really serious about studying the craft of writing, do it, you know, study books on writing, study, you know, uh, Strunk and White, take, uh, you know, read books on, on grammar, just get really curious about it, get curious about how words work. I I still struggle with, with grammar just because I think copy just kind of trained it out of me. Um, but now that I understand it, like if I really slow it down, then I can get it. But it, it's a matter of expression. So the one thing is if it be willing at first, especially when you're starting out, to learn how to express yourself using grammar versus just you know farting out a whole bunch of words. It's great to get something out there But the better you're able to use particular words or the particular effects of grammar, the better your message is going to be. And then the more you get used to it, right? Like your style is going to evolve and change as as you grow as a person. And also as you gain more confidence in style, it's going to evolve and change. Then it might just kind of stay in a particular style. It's not saying you can't write in different ways, but that is going to take the more, um, Study of of learning language and how to express language, and also being a good reader. I think reading books on grammar and writing helps you see, like, oh, that's what Thomas Sowell is doing here, uh, or oh, that's how that sentence works. So that's pretty interesting. So I might try to steal that. Um, I'm going to try to steal that rhetorical effect. That's pretty neat. So when you study that, you know, you got to keep trying and experimenting with it. Then in time, it's, it starts to become your own, right? So my process is, um, you know, I'm not pressed up against a wall to, to do anything uh, or not to do anything. I'm not pressed up, against a, uh, pressed up against a deadline, excuse me. So I like to take my time to flesh things out and to really think about it in different various ways. And I think uh, that's also, you know, my two years was kind of in a sense of fleshing out, but you can do that in a very quick manner. Um, it's always good to, if you're unsure what to write, just sit down and just start asking yourself questions, just start flushing. It doesn't matter what you write, just, just try to get stuff out. Uh, and that can start helping to shape things. And then you can start shaping it into a draft or shaping it into an outline or, or whatever it is that you need to uh, do. I mean, my process now is a lot of writing is, is probably more so done in my head than anything. Um, you know, uh, my, my neighbors around here must think I am crazy. Because I really have something going, um, and I can get stuck on things, so I can get stuck on like a pass, a paragraph I'm writing. You know, I'm waving my arms, talking out loud. You know, I'm sure they're like, "Oh, he's here again." You know, shut the shades. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. um, you know, but I I like to write a lot of it in my head, but it's pretty much in the morning for three to four hours. I know past four hours, it starts turning in. I can start really cranking after four hours but does it start turning into a rambling inside joke mess? Um, so it's like, I just cut myself off, you know? So generally from, yeah, I, I try to be sitting down by about eight 30 or nine. And then I go till about 12 or 1230. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes that is, yeah, it's all writing. And sometimes it's just staring out my window. Um, and then I have a kind of a weird, spot train where I will just open. I don't, oh, I don't have like a ton of tabs open, but I'll just kind of like Google something weird. Like, but I don't pay attention to it. Like the other, I Google, like a roadhouse outtakes. I, I do not pay attention to it, but then all of a sudden, cause I let my, it's like this weird way where my brain starts breathing a little bit. And then finally I can get right back into what I'm writing. Like, that's what I'm missing. And then I just kind of go back. Like, and that's like, I'll look at my history. I'm like, what, what was I Googling? <laughs> like. Mm-hmm. you know, roadhouse outtakes, <laughs> like, I, you know, so it's kind of, <laughs> I, I don't Swayze even remember roadhouse? like I will, what's that?
0: The Patrick Swayze roadhouse. Yeah. The outtakes? Patrick Swayze one.
2: Like it's just, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> my brain <laughs> so just amazing. kind of starts going to b- bizarre lengths, but you know, yeah. let yourself have that kind of, you want to be able to start creating that environment where you can have that. And, you know, me writing in the morning doesn't mean you writing in the morning is going to be your thing. It might be writing at night. It might be writing post lunch. It's going to be very personal. But when you're starting to do it, uh, can, you know, because it's easy to read writing routines and want to try to start that routine. And that's great. But on the whole, over time, if you're going to be doing a lot of writing, you, you want to find that environment, that sweet spot where you're doing your best work, however many hours that is. And, you know, you don't want to be doing just writing just for writing's sakes. Like I saw some guru the other day. He's like, I wake up and have Mountain Valley water and write, then have an almond latte, then write, then have an almond latte, then write. I am mean, like, that just sounds like personal health. Um, <laughs> you know, where it's just like, but I mean, that's a, but, you know, you don't want to be boasting about it. You want to make your routine whatever it is your routine. And it could be three to four hours. It could be seven hours. I don't know what it is. But whatever fosters that environment, uh, that, that sweet spot of time. And also, that sweet spot of time might be where you, yeah, I mean, it could be staring out the window for, for an hour. Or it could be random Google searches that you never, ever pay attention to. Um, and that's what kind of, you know, but whatever fosters that environment to keep you going um is the big thing so and then uh yeah i think that's what keeps it just kind of keeps you going you know that just kind of keep your mind is kind of trained and or not trained i don't know it's just a habit like my mind is always going on what i'm writing because i think it's a little bit of my routine it, I mean, it's always going on, on what i'm writing it's, it's always the first thing in my mind is i mean yeah I mean, reading always helps my writing but like when i'm on a walker even after I finish a, a set in the gym, I'm thinking I'm right back to what I, what it is I'm writing. I and mean, that was a ramble. Do you, know sense, but yeah, it, it's I think the biggest key takeaway there is: it, it's you find out a way when you're new to it to make it your own, and then really foster that environment when you feel like it, it's a natural fit for you, where you don't have to be doing weird things. You know, you don't. I mean, I, I guess my routine is like I don't wear any athleisure or anything like that. Uh, you know, I get dressed and sometimes I, what I'm wearing for work, I won't wear when I'm finished. Like I, you know, cause I like to start reading in the afternoon. Uh, you know, I'm not going to, I'll just take it off. So, but it's kind of just a routine that I've got made from work from home, whatever just starts to feel natural to you. That's, that's the thing to foster and create.
0: That's great. That's actually great advice. Cause I, I, I obviously in the success hustle grind set world, there's all these different routines you can follow, do my five-step morning routine, whatever, whatever. I've I've (laughs) never enjoyed those just because it's like, I'd wake up and I have something to do the minute I open my eyes. I have to go do this and this and this and this. I always resist that. But there is something that's like, okay, what do I actually need from me to be successful in what I do? What is the gift that I can give myself of knowing that this is what Will needs? Maybe no one else needs that, but this is what works for me. And I think that that's in, in all the success-focused literature and podcasts and books and all that stuff, it's like trying men trying to force themselves into the mold of another man, what works for them, and losing sight of the fact that like, no, you have to find out what works for you because it's your process, not right. Ryan Holiday's. Or, go ahead.
2: Right. Well, yeah, I think that's, I mean, you nailed it, you nailed it on the head. And I think a lot of guys, yeah, they will try to say, like, I love Robert Caro in his book, Working, which is his writing process. And and Robert Caro is one of the greatest writers uh, ever. And, you know, in his process, he writes a thousand words a day, but I think he writes it very slowly because he likes to work through the draft that he wrote wrote before, you know, but some Mm -hmm. people say, well, just pick up right from where you left off and start writing that may or may not work for you or a hybrid may, may work for you. Um, you know, sometimes I, I do that myself, either I, I have to edit what I'm seeing before or I have, or I just leave it. So it is finding what works for you. And then again, to repeat, yeah. You know, when you're starting out, yeah, if you like a certain writer and this is his routine, then try it, but you're going to have to prune the edges to make it fit yourself. Like you may be a three or four hour guy with zero distractions. Or you know, maybe every once in a while you have classical music on in the background or something like that. Or maybe it isn't. Like Lee Child, the, the creator of the Jack Reacher series, his writing routine was he got up. I think he had like a cigarette and a ton of coffee. Then he just kept walking around New York City for hours. Then he, uh, I think like three or four in the afternoon, like he, he smokes weed or has like one joint and he starts writing. And he writes with one, he's a one-fingered writer. His daughter orders him a pizza. Um, so he has like a pizza at 10 PM at night that gets delivered. You know, his daughter orders it for him. It gets, comes to the door and delivers, but that, but that works for him. That's, that's his routine. It probably seems like to the hustle bros, he's not doing anything. He's just walking around right. probably someplace in Manhattan for hours, just drinking coffee, not doing anything. Then he just sit, then he just like, well, you know, then he, I don't know how much weed he smokes, but then he just sits down and just starts writing. Like that's, but that doesn't mean like, oh, I got to start smoking weed at 4 p.m. And I got to have, oh, you know, I don't have a daughter. So I better have a daughter to get me a pizza at 10 p.m. like <laughs> You know, like that, that's not how it goes. You know, that's,
0: that's his. What thing. kind of pizza is it?
2: Yeah, exactly. you know, like, and he has a luxury of that, of that time. You know, cause some of these writers, like if you, like I love, like Charles C.W. Cook over at the National Review is one of my favorite writers. I just love his writing style. Um, But he has to meet meet deadlines, right? He's he's in condition to meet a particular style or what he is doing. You know, so, but what works for him may not work for you because that certainly Lee Child that wouldn't work for Lee Child. I'm sure Lee Child could do fine writing as a journalist who needed to meet deadlines. But it's you know it's it's different, right? They they, they go at different times, and who knows what works best for Charles and who who knows doesn't. So that's the thing: is you really. Make it your own. Try a bunch of different writing routines, but over time, it's just going to feel natural. Um, You know, like even even my cats and my my dog know my routine. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, so many years. Like my dog Noah, she can't wait in the morning. She just sits and stares. Like she sits on the couch and just stares at me. And I'm like, all right, you can come into the office. And she, you know, she bounds in. She just knows. But if that's not happening, like if I'm taking if whatever life happens, she's like anxious. you know, same thing with my cat. He'll knock over, he'll start knocking over books. Like, it's time to get in there. <laughs> you know, like, cause they just, they're oh, so God. used to it. But yeah, and it, and that takes time, right? I mean, I I don't, and I can list it out and sell it as a course of this is my thing, but it just takes time to, and then it just becomes your own. Um, and then, yeah, it just, you, it, it's just a very fostered environment over time.
0: I think all this stuff is, it's so, it's so important because um, one of the, one of the topics that's kind of floating around in my mind in this conversation is, uh, is chat GPT, you know, the impact that, that AI writers are going to start having. And the consensus from men that I respect seems to be that like more idiosyncratic voices will start riding, rising to the top because AI can't actually imitate an actual, you know, fully developed human being. Um, and so if you if you want to be successful in writing, how are you going to be better than, than AI? It's not that difficult, but how are you going to be better than an AI? And that involves, imbo- that involves your values and who you are as a man. And that involves how do you go about producing the things that reflects your values? So I see all these things kind of putting back together, like how are we going to be human beings in order to compete with the robots?
2: Right. Uh, I mean, yeah, cause there's this kind of this thing of, of handing our, our thinking over to AI. Yeah. And then the retort is often like, "Well, you do you wouldn't know, bro." Like I could show you Edward Gibbon chat GPT or real Gibbon, you wouldn't know. I'm like, "I don't think good writing comes down to a parlor trick. Like if I mistakenly pick chat right. GPT or Gibbon wrote that and it's chat GPT, it's not like this total own like, "Oh, bro, you're replaced." Uh, <laughs> that right. that's why I mean, obviously I know that it, it's still it's not a sentient being that people think it is. It, it, it is an incredible tool. I think it is going to radically alter copywriting probably in a good way because many copywriters are weirdos um, and a business won't have to deal with some weird guy charging them $10,000 for something that may or not may not work. And then the weird guy, you know, like copywriters are, are a weird bunch. So it will change that. But, um, Keep thinking of the of the south park the recent south park episode where they have they had chat gpt on it and it was so well done oh, um because and, and i'm noticing a lot of people don't understand and where i've seen this in the like money twitter success is you know they they're everyone's goo gaga over what chat gpt wrote and people can put in better inputs to c- create better writing But so much of it right now, and this may change, is so trite and so cliched. It's just like full of chestnuts. And there's a great piece somewhere by uh, the—I don't know if it was—I forget who. It was was a top journalist somewhere, and they put in, you know, prompts like, "Can you please do it without platitudes?" And then it just comes right back with platitudes. Can you please say that? And then it's like, okay. Then try the problem of, okay, can you say this as? I forget what it was like as Elmore James. So writes is like, okay, can you say as Elmore James with no platitudes and cliches? And then immediately pumps out platitudes and cliches. So, but I notice a lot of people on money, they don't understand, like they don't understand like what a platitude or a cliche is, right? They don't understand that the Seth Godin book is just all platitudes. Um, and ghostwriters are really, really talented at, at knowing how to kind of write that pandering style. And that is not at all a knock on ghostwriters. Like someone like Joshua Lazek is very talented at what he is doing. Because mm-hmm. Know how to write those sentences. Uh, you know, and Joshua is a good writer, but you read other like, uh, you know, other ghostwritten nonfiction. And it's like, if you just... No wonder why people aren't looking at arguments. They're just looking for the, the lessons because every sentence is just the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. Well, people are like, this is revelatory. Well, it's not, it's a bunch of old chestnuts. It's, a, it's like it's someone sprinkled fortune cookies sayings on the thing. And, um, you know, and I thought, you know, coming back to the, so one, people aren't understanding that, right? They're not understanding, like that's a big thing where we're kind of a post-literate society where they can't see the platitudes and the trite hackneyed. Sayings and everything, um uh, you know, and that will work for copy because copy is a is a formulaic prose, and it is a vulgar prose it has it, and that's a, you know somewhat a knock, but it's also not a knock. It's just the way copywriting works but the coming back to the South Park episode, I thought it was so genius that you know they <laughs> all of the text you know it comes with him texting his girlfriend, and all he does is just put the text and there's no interaction, he just puts text into what. She says, and she's loving it. And then you know she confronts him, saying, "Oh, that thing that happened in Switzerland." And he's like, "Oh, what?" So there's no human element, <laughs> right? Has, let's all has done all the thinking for him. <clears throat> then the other element is when they start writing papers for school. It's all biased crap, right? Because ChatGPT is still biased. If you really look at it, and I think yeah. that's a big thing of understanding worldview and values. Is you can see sometimes some writers, you'll you can sense a little bit of that worldview in their fabric whether you agree with it or not, like, okay, they're coming from this position a little bit, um, which is which I think is a, a good thing sometimes, right because uh, I think they're more unapologetic when they're they're not trying to deny it if they're not trying to manipulate through it or anything, but all the papers are you know Cartman writes the uh, you know a neoliberal feminist look of uh, post industrial. Some seriously, right? So it's, 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 bias, it's all this bias crap, you know, or or you know, Butters has this thing on uh, you know immigrants through the through the eyes of this, you know. So it's all this bias crap, and then the ending is uh, I thought this was really brilliant, and I think South Park made a statement on this. The ending is they wrote it using ChatGPT, and it's such a cardboard ending, right? It, it's so predictable. But they have this character shadow bane that ChatGPT is not going to suddenly likely come up with a character shadow bane which is this weird guy with, with a hawk that screams and he's throwing weird things. Like it's not gonna be able to predict or really generate something so out of the box. So I mean that does come back to the idiosyncratic thing. You know, the more you learn the language, the more you express yourself a chat GPT may be able to imitate your style, but that's all it is. It's an input output. It's like a very, you know, it's a better Wikipedia or better Google, but it, it's not going to suddenly generate your style. And that's, what's going to make you stand above when everyone else is focused on the Hemingway app or Grammarly or this or that and third grade writing. Yeah. I'm going to have, write this blog post like this. Like if you're just reading content created, and not able to express your personality in your particular style, whatever that style may be, uh, and to do it with a lot of clarity, yeah, I mean, the, you're not going to stand out next to you know some chat GPT, some blog company that uses chat GPT to write, make up a personality and writes blogs on who knows what, supplement optimization or something.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned Hemingway because I used that for a while and just to clean up some of the copy. But when I there was one post that I wrote where I really tried to follow all of its suggestions, and I found that it bashed all of the me out of my writing. Yeah. Like, oh, sorry, sorry, Ernest, I used a comma. Like, my bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Can I, Hemingway has you know loves, ten words. <laughs>
2: yeah, it loves yeah. ellipses. Uh, you know the dot. Really? Uh, yeah, just loves loves it. And you can do that and get a grade one. And I remember, well, the funny thing is, it's a, it's a, the formula and the algorithm is really messed up. It's trying to use the Flesh Kincaid test. But everyone, including Grammarly, has bastardized that Flesh Kincaid test, which is you want to be 18 words or fewer and it's counting, what is it? It's counting the syllables. But the real Flesh Kincaid test, if you read the book, you know, a semicolon or a colon or, you know, if it's kind of measuring, or if we're using a lot of, if the sentence is really long, but it's shorter syllables, you know, it's still going to grade, you know, it's going to give, it would give like a, you know, a grade. It's very readable, right? So that, the Hemingway fails on the Hemingway app. But yeah, the algorithm is really messed up. And it's always on like, you know, the Jack, you know, Jack kicked the ball. Jill watched the ball. You know, (laughs) it's always like this very, very wooden cadence that the Hemingway app like, and it, nice. it can really take the life out. Same with Grammarly. Um, I mean, those tools, like Grammarly. If you want to use it for just some grammar mistakes, that's fine. Just be aware that's but it's wrong fifty percent of the time. Uh, but we're all gonna miss the it's it's or there there, uh, you know, or we're gonna right. Like, so it, it's okay that that's good for for that. But yeah, those, those Hemingway apps. Oh, do they just suck
1: the life out?
0: And if you actually read, if you actually read Hemingway, like, you know, read for whom the bell tolls and then feed your writing into a Hemingway app and see if you actually think that what comes out sounds anything like Ernest Hemingway, right? you know, because the, the depth and the beauty and the power of his language isn't, the brevity is the container that it's in. But the, the, the self and the power of the expression comes through so much, than the, so much more than just the word, the, the number of syllables in the sentence. There's more to it than that.
2: Right, and even for any of the copywriters listening, that it's even Hemingway App has a um, great habit of taking all of the cadence and rhythm out of the writing. So copywriting is yeah. a depends a lot on rhythm. I mean, all good writing has rhythm, right? Um, like Atomic Habits is so wooden. It's the same. It's like fifteen word sentences over and over and over and over and over and over again. Right? There's no variety, of sentences. Um, but good writing really does have uh, a good rhythm, and readers really like that at any level of reading, whether it's a sales, you know, a sales copy or something else, you know. But Hemingway is not going to miss it. Hemingway is going to miss the the music, um, you know. When you're reading it, does it have a rhythm? Does it have a flow? If someone was speaking it out loud, is it, is there pauses? Is that is that sort of natural intonation happening? Because readers, when they read that or, or listening, they're going to sense that really quickly if it's very. Um, like stiff, or it's too, or it just sounds like, you know, Jack kicked the ball. Habits are good. People like
3: habits.
2: (laughs) Okay. Okay, wow, this is a great song. Like, Because, yeah, you got to think of, I mean, especially for a copy, you got to think of it like a song, and not some weird esoteric thing. You got to think of it like a Huey Lewis song. It's it's a good pop formula, you know, very concise, a lot of rhythm to it. you know, it's Hemingway is just, yeah, it's just one note all the time.
0: Yeah. And, and it just sort of makes me think about going all the way back to the start of the conversation. We started out talking about, you know, 3000 page decline and fall of the Roman empire by Edward Gibbon. Right. Like, yeah. like the research and the depth and the beauty and the power of writing. Like I haven't read it yet, but to like, just, just compare, talk a little bit about some of the writing of that versus some copywriting is such a different world, but versus like, the Hemingway app, GPC stuff, like it's the, the huma- humanity isn't even the word, like capital H humanity that I imagine must come through that book is, must be profound.
2: It is. I mean, the big thing, and this is an over, it's an overlooked style. It still exists today, but so Gibbon wrote in what's called a classical English style. Um, and a lot of people understandably, aren't, really taught that style anymore, but if you read those books from the 1700s, from maybe like the about 1680s till early 1900s, well, and even Winston Churchill, he used the classical English style. Herman Melville also used it. Uh, Dickens uses it. Um, and it can be used for great rhetoric effect like Churchill. You know, people are like, oh, Churchill wrote, used big words. He doesn't know persuasion. Like, well, he persuaded an entire world to, to defeat the Nazis. Like, I think it's pretty good than selling a, you know, a tribulus supplement or something. <laughs> like, good job. <laughs> so he, he uses a classical English style, which is a, um, the, the very mix, the very basics of it is a mix of Saxon and Latinate words. And, um, there's also a use of repetition and there's a use of, which can either emphasize a point or you can use like, you know, certain, Words like really big Latinate words right, right next to a really small word to create a point to kind of have a humorous element. Um, you know, so he kind of uses big, ponderous, superfluous words like real florid, and then all of a sudden it's this real ugly little like word. Like he just comes out and then it's like the, you know, it comes out to a real like nasty word or something like this real nasty Saxon word. But he's doing that, it's doing that for this beautiful effect. Uh, there's a great book called uh, Classical classical English style by Ward Farnsworth that unlocks that style and shows how it's done. And it really unlocks a lot of those books. Um, uh, you know, like some of like the federalist papers, you know, Alexander Hamilton wrote, I mean, he, Alexander Hamilton wasn't the stylist that, uh, Edward Gibbon was, but you still see how he's, how you he can use this idea to present ideas. And then when you see that style, you're like, Oh wow. And once you know it, you're like, Oh my God, this is just awesome. Um, uh, so he does that, you know, he'll do something like he'll use big Latinate words. words. Um, and then he'll, in the next phrase, in the next, then he'll use a semicolon and say the same thing with all Saxon words. And it's doing this effect of here are all the big ideas, but then here it isn't how like, here's a kind of a, an analogy saying the same things, but it really paints this beautiful picture. Um, and he just does it so well. Um, it's just so amazing and it is very readable i mean i can 't mention so there are some books that had sort of helped me tackle it um or are still tackling it um but it is just so beautiful how he presents something um how especially if he's able to take something he's ha- he 's able to have a lot of fun like he's able to show um you know a double standard behavior of say paganism or christianity or of a leader or something like that and he's able to kind of add in a little bit of flair that makes it a little bit more readable about what this guy was doing. So he's able to show this, you know, this, he's having fun, but how he's doing that is you're able to really capture like why Julian was very conniving and very smart, but you're able to capture it uh, you, when he uses like a turner phrase that makes you, you know, smirk, you're able to capture so much of what's going on. Right. You're you're able to kind of capture a feel of what people, you know, what he's doing. Um, which is just fascinating. Uh, and especially to when he shows some of the most harrowing elements. I mean, that's a thing that is through that book all the time, is that man is tragic. Um, you know, I would say, you know, to kind of quote uh you know Thomas Sol again, the constrained vision, uh Gibbon is definitely constrained. Um that you know, man is flawed. And he shows. That you know like war has a nature, and its sometimes it's very ugly it uh, you know they they can come in with the best of ideals, but there are going to be those people who are just going to it's just awful you know what what can happen you know when an entire bloodline is purposely wiped out, or you know when uh you know the they're come in and they you're part of the you know certain uh like the Huns just had no care about you know rape or anything like that. They just thought that was part of the thing. So imagine coming in and, you know, but they're purposely taking husbands and fathers and soldiers are, you know, raping the women in front of them. You know, they're, you know, they're, and it's just how he's able to take those harrowing things and allow pause and reflection, right? He, he doesn't glaze past it. He uses a particular style to allow you to just, just rest with us a moment. Then in a couple passages later, or soon enough, he's able to kind of inject some humor again to kind of get you like, oh man. You know, like he, he's able to not keep you so like, he's not just sitting there with like ennui, like the world is is awful. He's just he he paints this picture of man and then is able to kind of release the tension, you know, a few paragraphs later. And that just makes it so compelling and so human. Uh and so beautiful of how he does that. Um, you know, how he's able to capture, you know, the, the foibles that are funny of man, but also just the, the harrowing, abhorrent things that happens. And in, in a sense, he's making the kind of warnings of the past in a very graspable way. Uh, you know, he, he's able to show these warnings of the past, that this is part of man, this is who we have. Like when war happens, this is going to happen. We're not going to suddenly change you know, we're going to have to find our best way to handle this. And he's just, he does that in such a good job.
0: Would you say that reading this book is, is transforming you or changing you?
2: I would say so. Yeah. I mean, uh, on multiple levels, there's so much to it. Um, I mean, I'm not like a foreign policy expert, um, but in my opinion, and not saying that Gibbon is necessarily pushing this opinion, but I see like the importance of having deterrence um, you know, it, it, with your government having deterrence, I'm also seeing, uh, have a lot of more pride in how smart the founding fathers were in the system they set up because it is a stable system. They clearly learn their lessons like, well, this could happen. So
3: hopefully not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a beautiful thing. I think the element of, um,
2: One of the big things that, that Gibbon has in there, and it's more implicit versus explicit, is um, his, uh, his themes of civic humanism. And I mean civic humanism in the terms of, of Aristotle. Um, and also, I will say, since people think Gibbon's anti-Christian, he very much reveres Christian ethics. Um, you know, just to say that, like, he, he, he reveres Jesus, but he questions the deity, but he doesn't in a very—it's very even-handed, I find— uh, people might take different opinions, but I find that he he doesn't, you know, he's not like dumping on Jesus or anything like that. He just has his questions. And I don't know if where Gibbon finished in the rest of his life with that question. Um, he's also a man of his time when when deism was kind of there. Um, but he has this thing of the the civic humanism, the Aristotelian sort of uh virtues. Um and if, if anything, to, to kind of go on the tangent, I mean, I think <laughs> Gibbon does not like Plato at all. <laughs> um, I mean, he respects the ideas, but he thinks he blames a lot on Plato. <laughs> um, hmm. uh, but as much as, yeah, as, as, as important as, as Plato is, as he says. But, anyways, coming out of my ramble here, the civic humanism is he really shows how important it was for both men and women to have particular values. He shows the importance of men and women during that period, uh, you know, and going through the his- history of time of even just phys- of exercising of having physical strength and doing rigorous physical exercise, even if they were in the Senate and they weren't going to ever go to war, but they still had some sort of physical ed- you know, uh, exercise that they were undergoing. Because uh, in a lot of them, I guess, what seemed to be popular at, the, at certain times is they would kind of train like soldiers, not that they were necessarily going to ever going to do that. But they had it in some sense of a pride of if the barbarians came to the gate, they could handle themselves or that they were strong. But they also had, but it goes deeper into having this aesthetic personal taste. Um, and you can see that kind of in the statues back then. Like, this was something to uphold. And they probably also had it this idea that it's going to keep you healthy because they didn't have a lot of medical. I mean, a lot of us, was, there's was a lot of medical woo woo back then. Like, well, if you stare at the sun, maybe it'll fix whatever's growing on your arm. So they probably. I, I don't know. Were, I think
0: it's still kind of do that. Yeah.
2: So, but they had an idea that it, if you had physical strength, probably you were going to do better, you know, uh, which we know more now of. But they're really the beautiful thing that Gibbon. Shows is so yeah. So there's one element of this physical strength for both men and women, this physical aesthetic for both men and women, to uphold, and to uphold yourself to a particular standard. There is this one on courage, but there's also courage, uh, but also like this development of taste in the mind. So you know, to not to to prevent the mindset bros seem so like, oh, see, it's all about mindset. That's true. They had that. But there is this element where the citizens, or a good citizen, was upholding themselves to having taste in literature, having taste in the arts, having personal taste. And but Gibbon shows that it wasn't easy, that and that it isn't easy. But it's always something you're kind of self-educating. He always has this element of self-educating yourself on wisdom, and he shows that, that you know the the, the better leaders, the better emperors of that time, really worked towards that you know, to have this kind of sense of taste, the sense of reflection, even if they were flawed people, the sense of knowing literature helped them just kind of have more, just a, a better admiration for themselves or better you know, admir- more people admire them because they had, you know, they, they had the gifts of, of, um, you know, just wisdom and reflection, but also for themselves, for their own sanctity. And he does a really beautiful job of showing how important that is for the individual. Um, uh, and he really does an important job or beautiful job of showing it for both men and women to uphold themselves to these particular values uh and that it takes work and time and he just does it just this wonderful job with it um, that I just find fascinating
0: hmm. if, you, if you if you have a few more minutes, to, I want to be respectful of your time, but if you have a few more minutes I'm, i you know one of the things I've noticed that you post on Twitter is that you you push some pretty heavy weights up, and so you're a man who seems to embody—I mean, literally, no pun intended. However, you know some of the values that Gibbon is talking about here, and I think a lot of men are, are sort of mining that front lines and saying that, like, well, we have to be strong in body and strong in mind and strong in spirit, and these are not separate or different things. But sometimes, you know, a lot of men, particularly writers, can kind of let their bodies wither away, and they become kind of like brains in a jar. You yeah. know, maybe they can put, have great output, but they're not. They're not the Roman Senate training for when the barbarians are, are at the gates, right? Right. And it's tough because, I, I mean, on
2: like Twitter, you see things like, I only trust guys the physiognomy checks. You know? And it's tough because you see a favorite writer <laughs> yeah. who's just in <clears throat> bad health, but God, the guy is smart. You know? So it's
0: tough. Yeah. It Chesterton. Is- like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah um like yeah chesterton, chesterton was not it would not have passed a physiognomy check but like that dude he was dialed in c.s lewis would not pass a physiognomy check no, you know? no it's like no <laughs> like yeah
2: uh like i yeah. know thomas soul was in pretty good shape but you know now he's like 93 well, i mean hey, give it to him the guy's like 90 yeah he's 93 or something so obviously something's going yeah good. um but yeah he given it isn't important and it is Tough, right? Because we think it's just easy to like I believe in physical exercise. Like it, it really does help me. Like in lifting heavier weights, I didn't really start doing that until 2020. And that has been a huge help in my writing. I mean, I've always been uh very avid working out. Um, and that's always been, I think, just a great mental thing. But going really heavy in what I'm doing has just been just great. It's like like heavy five by five squats is one of the best psychological therapy sessions known to mankind, you know, and I look at these guys who want to do like the, you know, the weekend warrior, uh, go to Malibu and cry for a weekend and have Bedros Kulian call you a dumb bitch all weekend. Um, it's like, I just want to tell these guys, like just have a harder lift lifting routine, like just have a harder lifting routine or, or go to a judo gym and get thrown around or go to Muay Thai and get kicked in the face. Cause like, yeah, <laughs> You don't need to be having Bedros cooling in, put a waterboarding you to tell you and tell you how much you're a bitch. And then at the end, like, just, just have some more difficult, rigorous physical routine that you are undergoing, uh, you know, try powerlifting, see if, see if you can do it. And, you know, you you might be cursing at yourself, but you're going to, it's way better psychology, but this aspect of, uh, of how he puts it through it is through having taste is really good because we're so, I mean, I, I think aesthetic taste, and he puts it in, in various different ways from, from, uh, art, to music, to literature, to even just having good humor. Um, because you know, he Gibbon definitely is, is very much where he's, he, he sees the intolerance of both paganism and, and at the times Christianity. And he saw that kind of meshing. It's like, they they just kind of forgot the good humor side. You know, they just kind of, hmm. you know, just have a little bit of a good humor, you know, um, but developing that taste in it is not easy, but it is, it takes, um, trying to, you know, grasp things over your head, which can be re- try to get into some of the great works of literature or try to understand the art and don't, you don't need to go and be like, oh, this art must be a statement against the English revolution or something like that. You know, like everyone tries to do that stuff, but just go and have your, you, you just work to develop that touch and reflection around that. Um, it is so important and it's not because yeah, we, we have all, we have limited time during the day, but taking time to do that as given kind of shows how certain men and great men and women throughout history, how they did that is just, um, uh, and it, it just, it is a standard to uphold. Um, like I just read this, this, there was this one last bastion in the Roman empire that, not only maintained, you know, the Roman empire just kind of fell into decadence and stagnation and then just kind of fell into wanting its own vices. And then when the barbarians showed up, they had, they, they were like, well, we have just been having an orgy for a couple of years. You can't take us over. And, and you know, th- these guys don't, it's like, we have great buildings. It's like, well, it's too, we don't give a crap. Right. And there were still, you know, he gives these beautiful stories of these kind of last remaining people who held on to these these things, you know, and they, they stood out in time, but there was this, the amazanis or something, some, um, they held on to the fortitude and the arts. I guess it had, they had like a real beautiful city. Uh, they held on to the, the, you know, having high taste, having courage, having fortitude, having everything, right. It's kind of the ultimate. And so when the, when the Huns tried to show it up, they fought and they, they held the Huns back. And it's just kind of this very touching moment. Like here's like this, the last little like village. Some are out there for, you know, for the thousands of years maintained itself through the changes of, from paganism to Christianity. They, they, they upheld the morals. They upheld the arts. The people come and they're not sitting there like, you know, drunken at a bar or something like, oh no, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they fought, you know, you know, men, women, and children fought for their old patriotic pride and held off this country. And it's just beautiful because you can see that they, this community or whatever it was, the the majority of the people didn't let go of what made the Roman empire great, you know, what would have been a, by this point, like a thousand years before. And it's just fascinating and beautiful reading that, how they upheld us. And even to the two, the, the, the last few people, men and women who, They just, they maintain the values, you know, they bought in and they had this patriotic pride and, you know, when everything was going to hell, but they, you know, they, they died for those, these things. And it's just, this is a very wonderful uh, picture of it, you know, of these, and you see even some of these old men couldn't fight, you know, like I guess the first time the, the barbarians showed up to the Roman Senate, these old men haven't fought in years, but they're, they're, they're taking up arms. You know, like you're not gonna, you're not taking my daughter. You know, they they're taking up arms, or even some of the women, like we're gonna take up arms. Screw you guys. Um, you know, you killed my husband. You killed my son. So I'm coming. You know, um, you know, and they may not have had any sort of skill to do with it, but they're, you know, it's just that they had that. This is what I have to do, uh, and it's just beautiful how he how he paints that. How that's through values, and it's not just all brawn, uh, because you know the the barbarians came in, and they were kind of the the missing courage that the Romans used to have—that that was also tempered with, um, you know, better va- you know, values of taste and reflection and and dignity and and politics and and no, it wasn't perfect. There was a lot of conniving, but there was something a little bit better about it than just be kind of becoming routine killers. Um, you know, when they came, you know, they had a lot of courage but no knowledge, and then they just wiped all these people out. But here's like these last few people hanging on to
3: it. Ah, yeah just just gorgeous how he how he depicts that
0: that sounds amazing actually that sounds like the kind of inspiring picture that i think a lot of a lot of people would be looking for right now like how do we preserve what is important to us in the face of our own particular barbarians i guess
2: right right and i I mean it's fascinating that this when patriotism starts to to fold um and then also that like the patriotism is involved of holding yourself up to a particular ideal out of the sense of, of good pride, not bad pride, but good pride. Uh, when that starts to fold, man, it just goes, it just goes sideways, but seeing these last remnants of people who held on to that. Um, uh, and in some ways, some of them, you know, they, they saved, you know, some of the great works that we have today. um, you know like when like Saint Augustine, I mean he uh Gibbon definitely knows his his theology, I mean, he really knows Saint Augustine, he really knows the Bible, but Saint Augustine was you know you could call him maybe Machiavellian and things, but he was able to maintain certain things that that fortunately that did such a great job for Western civilization later because he was able to uphold these kind of particular sets of values um you know and and the other, these other people who are dying who kind of maintain these values, that, you know, when the barbarians respected them, when the Huns came and said, geez, these people, you know, they mean business, you know, they respected them in some way, shape, or form because they, they had this sense of fighting for something bigger than themselves. Um, and also that bigger than themselves w- was also part of the pride from where they are from. You know, and we have a lot of repudiation today. Of the pride of where we are from at multiple levels and i see it even on both political sides it's, there's there's a sense of repudiation on things uh, but man it, it just seeing when they come together to do that you know to fight off you know attila the hun was just he, you know his soldiers were like oh you know they were brutal and attila was like the one smart guy and he just had you know it's like he basically just unleashed animals and he knew how to do it uh even though he had political smarts um, he was, he was just basically unleashing the animals onto people. Uh, but when they, these people or these animals saw this group fighting back, you know, they, there's a respect there uh, and they got curious about it, you know, and that's how some ways, you know, how, uh, you know, how some certain Christians survived because uh, they respected the religion of it because the Christians, you know, because you know, their faith and ethics were able to kind of keep them like going. Whereas if it was just like some kind of more academic, like how do you not liking my ideas? You know, they, the barbarians just killed him because he, he wasn't willing to really die for his ideas. Right. But, and then, but, but, the people who show courage and fortitude were able to regain their freedom again, you know, where they were enslaved, all of their money gone, their family completely and utterly destroyed, but they were, they were able to regain through courage, fortitude, um, they were able to regain freedom again. It took time, but man, it's just such a so beautiful how he puts that, and you see that ideal. And it's tough, right? It's tough to become both as strong as a barbarian, but also as uh, to to hold as much cultivated taste as you know as I don't know, I don't know, like you know, a cultivated taste as a classicist, you know, as a something like that. It's very difficult to uphold that uh, and and attain that. and he just shows how it is difficult. It's not easy, but these people who did it, they survived
0: hmm. In some way. You will know, you I, be writing? What's that? Go ahead. Oh no, sorry, go on. I was gonna say, will you be will you be writing about I, I imagine you will be, but I, I I wanna are you documenting this journey through the book? Is there some way that you're surfacing this for people? Because I'm listening to you talk about this and and uh, I'm almost living vicariously through your experience of reading these books and now it's like Myself and start and start reading them, perhaps.
2: Yeah. So a a, a good a, a reader of mine, uh, uh, his name's Will. He he presented an interesting idea of me doing like a book club, and then I kind of yeah. said to him, like, oh, I'm like, well, I'm reading The Decline of Fall. I'll be, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> a lot of people are gonna, you know. I said, okay. I, I probably won't surprised. finish this whole thing until my guess is July is when I'm gonna finish this thing. Um, and I started so, on January second. Yeah of this year. so I I'm, I'm guessing July. Um, so I'm like that, that'd be quite a book club. <laughs> like,
0: but um, I think you'd I, be surprised how many guys would be into that.
2: Yeah. So, but I kind of, I mean, I, 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 tend to do articles about, you know, the books I'm reading, but this one, uh, through his sort of influence, I, I think the initial article I'm first and it, this is one I'm working on now is kind of somewhat going to be a, almost a Q and a and almost an observation with my musings of it because I, I have found this to be a very distinct read. Like before I got into it again, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, a lot of it's anti-Christian it's, it's revisionist, it's this and that. So I got all of these things that were wrong about the book uh, mm-hmm. that weren't right. And all of these warnings. And then of course there's Twitter reply guys like read, read Gibbon, bro. And I've gotten a couple of that on Twitter and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm at the part with the neoplatonists and like, what do you think of that? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. then you can see like the manosphere, like this is just like the decline. Oh, not really. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I, I, I'm going to do, um, you know, sort of my musings on it, and it, I don't know what exactly what it's going to entail. I'm going to, try, you know, try, going to try to put in some fun things about it. But, you know, it'll be kind of the first email where maybe I open up about more of my personal politics and kind of what I see going on uh, around in the world, uh, you know, from and also from my position. And then and also I will talk about those particular individual standards, how beautiful that is uh, and how, how challenging it is um, and how it's, yeah, it's not easy to go lift 500 pounds for squats and then come home and then, and then try to read, you know, I don't know, try to read some Charles Dickens or something. You know, and then instead on the weekend, you know, instead of shit posting on Twitter or something to go to the museum and look at some great art, you know, to kind of work to cultivate a, a more, uh, you know, that higher taste, um, and also to, to cultivate it into a point where it is, you know, your, your pleasure time or your downtime is something a little bit more, you know, useful in a way you're enjoying it. You're not purposely trying to grind through something, but it becomes a little bit like a higher sense of taste. So I'm gonna, you know, talk about that. And, you know, the the political one will be will be interesting. Um, you know, because I do see there's there's a lot of political lessons in there, and I, you know, I'm all, but I'm also going to do like a lot of people are asking me, like, are we in the fall? You know, because a lot of people right now think like the collapse is like the collapse is happening in a week. You know, and, and I see it on both mm-hmm. the left and the right, like the collapse is happening now. You know, and maybe a little more so on the you know the doomer right, like, no, we need to get a monarchy. It's happening now. <laughs> like, like you know, Reagan caused the collapse like <laughs> let's let's just cool it like so, but I will say like there I mean there are some foreboding things that that I see, and I will mention that, and I see you know foreboding things from uh, both sides, it's almost impossible to say if we're we're in the we're in the decline or fall um you know, I, I go back and forth and we're definitely decadent, so I will talk about that, and I will talk about because a lot of people ask me like what caused the fall? was it the vaccine like <laughs> was it, you know, was it, was wow. it Donald Trump? No, <laughs> like, no was it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, you see a lot today and it's not necessarily wrong, but you see a lot like, especially on the like manosphere areas it, that it was the uh, fall happened because of values, 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 the values, you know, it was all, yes, there was a lot of licentiousness and it, it's kind of crazy to see. Uh, and I do And I will Indulge myself and ramble here. It's kind of crazy to see how hmm. I don't know if it's promiscuity, or how, but how sexuality and relationships worked then. Um, hmm. So I, it now makes a lot of sense why the early Stoic writings um, and even Aristotle, and also the, the early Christian writings, especially like where they kind of stand on on sex is, is fascinating because it just seems like it was everywhere there. And to kind of like, I'm not, you know, I, I, am not going to indulge in, in everything here when it's everywhere. Right. I can see why they might have been like, you know, the Stoics can kind of seem like a little bit fuddy-duddy on it. Like you read the Stoics about relationships with women and it's kind of like that. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie life of Brian, uh, the yeah, Monty Python movie, but they have the Protestants and the Catholics. Yeah. And, you know, and the Protestants have had sex twice, like the Stoics are kind of a little bit like that, you know, and the woman's sitting there like <laughs> we can, <laughs> like, but now it kind of makes a little bit of sense. Uh, and this isn't just men at that time. It's also women too. Uh, so obviously there was, there was a difference in, in relationships then. And so it's, it's fascinating seeing that, um, how that plays out and also the, you know, the You know, also certain moral ethics, uh, you know, from Aristotle, Plato, and, you know, the uh, Epicureans, how that kind of combated it. Then also how the Christians in their various forms, how they started to kind of, like, this is crazy. So you guys got to, you know, let's let's try to pick one partner versus. So they may have been doing it because like, you know, like, oh, well, she was married to him and he was married to her, but she was married to him. But then him hadn't married her, but then he died and betrothed her to him. So it's just like, Oh man, where who? So you're reading the names. You're like, where is this guy? Man? Like, this guy is now on his tenth wife or something. <laughs> I'm like, uh, so you know, kind of coming back out of that and back into values. Yes, values definitely were decaying, absolutely. But it wasn't the sole cause of the fall. Um, you know, it was a solvent. There was a there was multiple things in that fall. I think I heard Victor Davis Hanson said. You know, scholars are kind of thinking it's around. You know, they. They can count to 270 things, but they, you know, of that caused that fall. But it's not like this and this and this and like a domino effect caused it all. It was just a. It was so much going on. Values was certainly one thing, um, mm-hmm. but man, there's it, there was a lot more than just values, right? Like the instability of governments, the instability of emperors, the instability of economics, the, the complete loss of patriotism, um, and also you know there was things that were well intentioned, um, but they they got overzealous, you know, the tragic, the tragic flaws of man led them, you know, the political animal that man can be led them to make bad decisions at times, um, as well intentioned as they were. And that's just kind of a nature with man. Like someone can be really well intentioned and do something, but man, it just suddenly messes things up. Um, yeah. you know, and it's, it, you know, and it, and that's something that caused the fall. And then you can kind of like, that is, you know, a lot of things. So I'll, I will cover that. I can't detail everything that caused the fall, um, but I will cover. You know, it, no, it it wasn't a just a pet theory of the manosphere, right? you know, no, it it wasn't. Uh, you know, it wasn't Abraham Lincoln or something, <laughs> <laughs> some, some weird theory. No, it wasn't George Soros. You know, I mean, to me, it was sapiens. You have all know a Harari caused the fall, But uh, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah it, it's just a, it's a combination of things. So I will cover that, and I will cover those you know, those musings and I'll probably will try to talk about the, you know, the beauty of like that last city with like it's, it's final stand. Um, you know, they survive, but over time, you know, the, just the, everything else decayed around them and then they were lost. which is just mm. crazy. You know, the, this is, here goes the one battle, you know, they're going to survive out. And then all of a sudden the empire, their, their values and everything else around them just faded out into existence or non-existence.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's,
0: people are are very committed to looking for silver bullet answers for complex socio-economic historical problems. Like, what is the one thing? Well, there is no, there is no one thing. There are some factors that are more significant than other ones, for sure. And I do think, uh, I do think promiscuity, I do think the sexual revolution was a, and this is, to, to bring it back around to E. Michael Jones, that's what libido dominandi is about, is about the the consistent use of human sexuality as a wrecking ball that was smashing against the foundations of Western civilization in various ways for 250 years. And the book concludes, like he finished writing it in the late 90s. So the book concludes with the way that pornography is just beginning to merge into into, um, American public consciousness. So the Clinton era and all that stuff. And you can just see over the course of the 600 pages, just exquisitely footnoted and everything, just the way that, that it was used to smash all kinds of values at all different levels between men and women, relationships, children, identity, sexuality, all of it, all of it. And yet even still, despite all of that, that was not the one thing, right? right? Because you can, that's just the context of one book. I mean, you could talk about China. You could talk about, you know, cheap goods manufactured, the, the crisis of confidence in the late 70s, right? You, or you can, you know, go back to World War II and World War I wiping out 35 million men, you know? like yeah. how, They would have been pretty good fathers probably, right. right? So, I mean, you can't ever pick one thing.
2: Right. And that's, yeah, like you couldn't say that on the, it, yeah, like the Roman Empire, you couldn't say that either, you know, like you could yeah. like Commodius, you know, it was, it was unfortunate that Marcus Aurelius picked his son over other better options. Um, you know, and Commodius was just, you know, he just turned in on himself and was just indulging in such, you know, sensuality at, at all corners. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, you know, empresses and stuff like that, they just focused themselves on this thing. And even, you know, given shows that even at, at poorer levels, like there was some room to move, like a, there was room to move up in the empire thank God we don't live in the Roman empire. Like you know, people are like, Oh, that was right. a, that was a noble time. Like, yeah, but it was mm, brutal. not so much, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, yeah. You know, there's this empire where like your know, men would go and yeah, they, then they just go into bars and then just, you know, or women would go into bars and just, you know, leave their children out the side. And that, cause they, it was just easier to indulge in these sensualities. Um, you know, Versus, you know, where there was this element of you were if you were a craftsman or craftsman or a good soldier, you you had some form to rise. It was not, you know, it was very hierarchical and had all types of political things. But they even show that there was ability to somewhat gain some sense of footing, and it took work. You know, and there was this idea like I'm a Roman, so being a Roman means being strong, being fit in mind, being smart, being X Y Z. So I need to be working towards that. Um, You know, and then obviously, even Gibbon shows each side. Like you know, that there was the pagans, but there's pagans had a lot of weird stuff going on. But if they had like, okay, I'm a Roman, but I have the sun god. Make sure I, you know, so kind of the similar things of you know the like the good parts of Christian ethics, where you know, Gibbon says you know the Christian ethics did a great job because like versus like well this god says this god and that god says this god, so I gotta well shoot it's 4 a.m. So I gotta do what this god you know it just it just got so like. Which God do you need to do to get out, out, out of bed today? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. like, uh and given Gibbon does a good job of kind of showing that, like, okay, this is so manic. <laughs> like, you know, and it was too bad that they they didn't listen to the the arguments of the Christians of like, no, 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 you, you guys got it wrong. It's not a zillion of these guys, but the Christians, you know, could also come on a little bit overbearing too. Uh, you know, where they said, you know, we're you know, like Aristotle has wonderful lessons, but oh, no, he's he's evil. You know, like he had those very early on. Like, nope, he's evil too. It's like, well, wait a second. So then it's just all of right. a
3: sudden it's, it's it's a battle.
2: Um, but yeah, I mean, coming back to it, like it, it it wasn't just that licentiousness. Like that was there. The Senate class fell into it, but um, it wasn't just that that caused it to to fall. I mean, it, but. You know, what? the more pervasive it got, the bigger the issue it was, but it wasn't just the soul thing. I think a lot of people, like you said, want that magic bullet of the, this is it, you know, like, no, well, might've been a solvent
0: in it, but not the whole thing. Solvent is a good word. It was, it was a contributing factor. Yeah. Well, cool, man. This is, this has been a, a, a crazy adventure through a, an incredible, uh, group of topics that I've just been thrilled to talk with you about. Like I'm, I'm almost tempted to go over to Amazon and pick up decline and follow Roman empire right now and catch up with you on your book club.
2: Yeah, no, do I have, I'm not doing the book club, but yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, I, 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 very much do highly, highly recommend it. Um, you know, and, and I can leave real quick, like for the listeners, if they want to read it, you know, Ward Farns with classical English style will help very much unpack that book. And, um, you know, if you want a little bit more of a precursor, you know, the letters of Seneca, Seneca was, um, especially the ones mm-hmm. translated by A.A. A. Long, uh, you know, try to not to just take the Stoic lessons. He has a lot about Roman life at that particular time. Um, and if you want a more modern writer like Neil Ferguson, clearly, you can clearly see the influence of Gibbon on Ferguson, but Ferguson is, you know, is more modern. So its topics are a little bit more understandable, you know. He had a great book on COVID called Doom. So you know, if you read a little bit of Ferguson, you can go into uh, Gibbon with a little bit of. Uh, you're, you're able to grasp a little bit of what Gibbon is doing because Ferguson definitely uh, it takes a a lot of great lessons from Gibbon and his writing style. So it makes it a little bit more approachable.
0: Hmm. This is yeah. I, I've been taking notes as we as we've been chatting. So all of the books that you've mentioned. I'm going to go right over to Amazon and research all of them, but all those will be in the show notes because I, I think um, there were a number of different ones that you said that were that were intriguing intriguing to me because we all have our literary journeys with the books that we're reading and and why I read a lot of books for my guests and all that stuff. So that takes up a lot of my reading time. But I'm aware, particularly because my Amazon Save for Later card is probably hundreds of books deep at this point. Yeah, I'm aware that there are all these different choose your own adventure journeys through the well, the book, so many books, so little time, right?
2: Yeah. No, I, I understand that. So I know I'll never, I know every time I buy a big pile of books, there's probably like two in there that I'll, that I'll never get to. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And I don't know which well, one. Well, thank
0: you so much. For, well, I mean, you know, you'll come, to, come back to it later until it's just kind of like, well, maybe, I, okay, maybe I should donate this book now. Maybe I'll <laughs> never read it. Like someone recommended like Tom Brown's School Days at Oxford was a book from the muscular Christianity era in the early 20th century. And so I bought that and that's like, it's been sitting on my shelf for a while. I'm I'm probably not going (laughs) to, I I opened it up. I'm like, I'm probably not going to read this. (laughs) I hear that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Where would you like to send men to find out more about you and what you do?
2: Yeah. Well, no, thank you. This has been a, a, uh, yeah, an an awesome conversation. And and it could go on for hours more. Um, Yeah. is probably the easiest place to find me. I am on Twitter. I think what was my handle? Uh, find Jim Clare. Fine. Um, you know, I, I try to tweet every day. Uh, you three will to, to mention and to grow my account, which feels like work <laughs> every day, but I, I do mm-hmm. have a little more fun there. Um, and I, you know, I show the books I read and, um, I'm not very active on Instagram, but Jimclaire.com and Twitter is probably the two best places to, to find me. Um,
0: you're pretty active on your email list too.
2: Yeah. So yeah, I usually about once or twice a month on my email list or announce the articles. I get about one or two a month out um, and try to keep a conversation going over
0: there too, as well. well thank you so much for your time, Jim. I, r- I really appreciate all your wisdom and experience and the generosity um, that you showed in kind of sharing some of your story for how you got here today.
2: No, thank you. This is, yeah, this has been an absolute, absolute blast. I'm honored you asked to have me on here.